Hey, real quick, I just wanted to let you know that Gabba Gabba Hunt is now a record store. Well, not really a store, but a booth at an antique store located in Eastridge Mall in Gastonia, North Carolina. Vintage Village is three stores down from Dillard's on the left. And my booth is on the left side of Vintage Village. It's the one with all the records. You can't miss it. I've got over a thousand records, toys, t-shirts, DVDs, VHS, all kinds of stuff there. So come check it out. Gabba Gabba Hunt Records and Vintage Goods located in Vintage Village at Eastridge Mall, Gastonia, North Carolina. You are now listening to the Gabba Gabba Hunt Talks Podcast, where we bring you conversations with people connected to the Carolina's underground music scene. Your host, Mike Phillips of Van Huskins. Yeah, we're playing a bunch of cheap trick now. You know, I'm not playing with those guys in dangerous ways doing oh, yeah. stuff too. And they're all big cheap trick fans. You know, it's all like cheap trick and thin Lizzie and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. You know, and just, you know, band, you know, bands we like. It we don't really get at this point. If people like it, great, but we're kind of doing it for ourselves. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the way I do with, with the stuff that we play these days. It's yeah, like, you know, it's just, I play the music I want to listen to, and if some other people like it, that's great, awesome. But if you not, know, you know, but, I'm still going to do it. Yeah, I'm it's like it. at this point, I don't aspire to be a rock star or anything. That <laughs> yeah. ship's pretty much sailed, you oh, know. Yeah. So, I just, you know, I just, I, I still do it because I have fun doing it, and, you know, and there's stuff, you know, it's just like this Motorhead thing that I'm doing. I don't know how many gigs there are for a Motorhead tribute band, you know. You're not going to play a town festival singing you're screaming jailbait, yeah. you know, and stuff <laughs> like that. What could be more fun than getting up there and just cranking it wide-ass open? You know, that's what I'm going to tell people. Don't complain about the volume. It's, yeah. a, it's a Motorhead tribute band. It's yeah. going to be fucking loud <laughs> because it can't be any other way. You know, oh, it's yeah. got to be loud. You, know, you can't go... Turn it down. The people at the first table having a little hard time talking. You know, you can't do that. So, yeah. so we'll just, you know, it's going to be fun, man. We're just doing it for the hell of it. We're doing the three-piece stuff, you know, not the Wurzel era, you yeah. know, and all that stuff. But, um, but we, can, we can go ahead and get started. And I'll yeah. use some of the stuff that we just talked about. That'll kind of lead oh, into fine. us talking. That's, yeah, that's we can, talk, you know, we can start wherever you want, you know. So, you know, you just kind of lead yeah. me and we'll go. And so. a lot of that stuff that, that we already talked about, we'll touch on again or we'll definitely get around to talking about again, especially like the Motorhead thing that you're doing. Now oh, yeah. All that. yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah. today I'm talking to, to Luke Edwards and... Luke's from Shelby, North Carolina. A lot of people are aware of that name for a lot of different reasons, but one of the biggest reasons would be Animal Bag yeah. back in the you know late 80s, early 90s. And uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, some people more local to the Shelby, Cleveland County area might even know him from, you know, In the Summer. Or uh, yeah, yeah. I believe you did some time at Sound Shop. Maybe. Well, no, I was down there a lot. Yeah, you were down yeah. there a lot. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 was, I, 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 I couldn't remember <laughs> if, you, if you were or not because I knew In the Summer was there and that, yeah. you had, had a job there. So Yeah, usually when I came in for work at In the Summer, you know, after school, you know, it was still high school days. So yeah. when I get over to work, I would truck it down to the Chick-fil-A to get a brownie and a lemonade. Yeah. And, you know, Sound Shop was right down there. So you'd have to duck in Sound Shop <laughs> and see what I was going on in there and everything. I spent a lot of time at Sound Shop. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they never paid me to be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, one way I always like to start the podcast off is kind of just kind of get an idea of where you got an interest in music in the first place. Not, not necessarily like what made you start playing, but when you were a kid, like musically, what was the first thing that kind of grabbed you and made you think that... It's funny, man. I still remember the... Um, First 45 I bought with my own money was Love Will Keep Us Together by the Captain and yeah. Tin Eel. I always just kind of dug stuff that had, you know, a real catchy melody, you know, mm-hmm. vocal melody and stuff, you know. And and then I liked the um, 
the the captain's keyboards sounded so cool. You yeah. know, he had such a cool <laughs> keyboard sound. All that, that stuff, yeah, especially but, that song. That's just yeah, got a really cool. Man, yeah. on, man <laughs> on, you know all that stuff. I loved that stuff when I was little. I was already kind of gravitating towards that kind of, you know, almost like abrasive sounding yeah. stuff. You know, and I, I liked that stuff a lot. And then you know the stuff that all you know people get exposed Van Halen and stuff like that. You know, mm. got into stuff like that. But I guess one of the moments that I really remember that kind of channeled me towards the stuff that ultimately started really influencing me mm-hmm. was my dad. You know, was in manufacturing plastic plumbing. That's what he did. Okay. Well, one of the guys that worked in the warehouse down at the plumbing place that he had was selling a home stereo with some speakers and stuff. So my dad bought this stereo from this guy mm. with a you know big old. Um, it was like a Sansui quad stereo system. You know, yeah. back in the early eighties. So he brought this thing home, and there were still a few eight tracks mm-hmm. in the um, stereo uh, the um, case. What you call yeah, it? I know you know, you know, cabinet, cabinet. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So anyway, so I would put on headphones and I would sit there and go through these eight tracks. You know, which uh, this would have been I was probably 12 years old mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, and so um, I was going through and I didn't know a lot of them, but there was a couple in there that really hit me. There was uh, Uriah Heap, Demons and Wizards mm-hmm. was in there. And Jethro Tull, Heavy Horses was in oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, man, I fell in love with both of those albums, yeah. you know. And it was just like the whole, um, you know, like Uriah Heep with all the kind of operatic prog rock stuff they had going on. And then, you know, and then there was straightforward rockers and stuff, you know. Got me really into Uriah Heep. Mm-hmm. And then the Jethro Tull stuff, man, I just loved that there was this kind of heavy side to them. And then there was this acoustic side. Yeah. You know, a lot of people found that through Zeppelin and stuff. Mm-hmm. I kind of found it through Jethro Tull. Yeah, yeah. And so I became a huge Jethro Tull head, you know, the point that Animal Bag even, you know, we were all Jethro Tull fans. So, yeah. you know, we ended up doing uh, Dunring Hill on, um, on Offering. That was one of our common influences and in everything when I joined Animal Bag. But, um, but that stereo, when he bought that stereo, that kind of set me off down a path. And then um, I remember when I got to... Um, junior high school over at Shelby Junior High mm. and you still had back then the uh, music classes were like once a month or something yeah. they'd have somebody come around and do the music stuff you know mm. you'd sing little songs and all that kind of stuff but anyway we had this it was like a student teacher that came in he was like you know getting credits on his student teaching or whatever but he came in and um, he was a music teacher and he brought in a um, turntable mm-hmm. and just brought in a stack of albums. And oh, he wow. just started playing music for us. He said, I want to play you guys some stuff, y'all, you know, that you might not have ever heard or something. Y'all just want to, you know, let you hear some different stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he just started pulling out all these different albums and started playing all this stuff, you know, and it was everything from, you know, Pink Floyd and Zeppelin to, you know, like even George Jones and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Just a, a variety. And he was playing so much stuff that, you know, all that stuff kind of sparked my interest too. And so I started investigating those bands and, you know, trying to get some stuff from them and everything. But it was just cool that, um, he brought in stuff like that and just that, that he thought that some seventh graders might get something yeah, out yeah. of it. You know, I cool, thought that right? was really cool. And so, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff started setting me down the road of not listening so much to, you know, radio stuff as just going out and finding your own stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I would go to record stores and, you know, you don't know how many times, especially when I started getting more into like punk rock and stuff, that I would just go buy something because I had a cool album cover. Yeah, yeah, you know, just because it was because cool. I got into like Sonic <laughs> Youth and stuff like that. I, I didn't know what they 
it sound like? Cool album cover. Let's buy it and see what it yeah, sounds like. I like, like the name of this band. That's a cool yeah, album cover. Yeah, it sounds cover. cool, so let, let's we, try it. You take know? a chance on it. Yeah, so that that became, you know, music became a very kind of experimental thing for me that you would just, you know, take a chance on something and see if you liked it, you mm-hmm. know. And, and that uh, was even like sort of back in the day before really like used CD stores and used. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, there, there were, I guess in Charlotte, there, they existed used record stores. But like around here, we didn't really see that. No, I think the uh, first place I saw that had used CDs was Carousel. Yeah. Carousel down at the uh, below Wall. Walmart. Right, exactly. Well, I can still remember getting my first CD player. I got this Ankyo CD player, and it was like four hundred dollars. Mm. It was like all I got for yeah. you know Christmas and birthday. When my Christmas CD <laughs> player and one CD, because right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. You know, my Christmas and my birthday were real close together. So if you wanted something really nice, you'd have to go. We well, could get it too for Christmas and birthday. Yeah, and that'd yeah. be cool. You know, so I think that's how I got my um, my CD player. So you know, I still remember. You know, when CDs became the thing. And before mm-hmm. that, like so much of my stuff, I, I still have cassette holders back there full of stuff with the um, record bar and sound shop and everything, mm-hmm. stickers on them, oh, you yeah, know, yeah. and everything. <laughs> but, you know, at that time, I was really, you know, I was really into skateboarding and, uh, you know, dragging around, a, we'd drag around a jam box and a thing full of cassettes mm-hmm. to skate with, you know, and that's so, I ended up with most of my, you know, punk and stuff like that was all on cassette and everything. So you now, know, did so. you find punk rock through like skateboarding or did you start to find it before you got into skateboarding? It, it Actually, I started, I, I started getting into punk rock through, you know, I, I mean, I, I found metal first, you know, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I became kind of a metal head first. Same here. Just- and, um, you know, and which is funny because it's kind of come full circle because one of the first, the, the first two bands that I fell in love with that kind of started, you know, steering me towards punk mm-hmm. was Motorhead. Yeah. You know, I mean, Iron Fist and all that stuff, you know, back when MTV first came out, you know, and they were playing Iron Fist, you know, all yeah. the time. And I was like, oh man, I love this band. But, and know? Motorhead, I've always said, is they're just as much a punk band as Oh yeah, exactly. Band. They were like one first I mean, they're a rock and band, roll band. But yeah. They, they, they are a punk metal rock and roll band. Oh yeah, band. <laughs> exactly. You know, for all the way from the attitude to the music, mm-hmm. you know. And then um, I remember having Anthrax Fist Full of Metal, yeah. you know, from before they had Joey Belladonna mm-hmm. and everything, you know, the more, you know, kind of rough, punky kind of Anthrax. And those bands, that kind of sound kind of started, you know, channeling me over towards punk. I yeah. liked that kind of, you know, raw in your face. I liked the sounds mm-hmm. of it, that it wasn't real produced. It just seemed, you know, it's something about it just made me. You know, it gave you that energy and everything, and and, and um, it really appealed to me. And so that kind of started getting into like you know, corrosion of conformity and mm-hmm. agnostic front, and a lot of those kind of thrash bands and stuff yeah, like yeah. that, crossover bands mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. And started getting real into that stuff. And then of course, you know, you always you know start by you buy stuff like you know Sex Pistols and yeah, all that stuff, kind of what I call entry level punk. Yeah, you know, so, you know. entry level Sex Pistols, Misfits, right? The Clash, exactly. You know, all those bands that you've heard of, Ramones. Right. The, yeah. the bands you've heard of, but they're easily accessible. You can find them in just about you can every find record it. store. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you'd probably already heard of it, you know, even if you didn't know what they sounded like, you'd heard the name of the band and stuff, you know. So that that's what start, kind of started getting me towards the punk. And it's funny because at the time, like none of my friends were into punk. They were mm-hmm. all into like, you know, metal and, you know, just, you know, classic rock, yeah, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. And the bands I was playing with at the time, because yeah, I, I, yeah, I got in my first band when I was in sixth grade. Okay, yeah, that's know? what we sort of wanted to talk about next. So we can kind yeah, of go ahead. Because the way that whole thing started, the one program that I really credit for setting me down the road to playing music, I was lucky enough when I was in fifth grade 
was over at Jefferson School. I, we moved around a lot when I was young. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it was like, you know, first through third, I was, you know, Elizabeth School, county schools. And then I moved over in fourth grade to Graham School. Then in fifth grade, I was at Jefferson School, yeah. sixth grade, Cleveland Schools. You know, so there for a while, I was moving around. When I was in fifth grade at Jefferson, they had like an experimental program that they just tried out that year and it only happened that year. It never got put into circulation or anything. Mm -hmm. But it was a a program called IME. And I wish I could remember the name of the teacher that taught it. But uh, what it was, was like once once a week, we would go out to this little trailer behind the school Mm -hmm. and the IME stood for Instrumental Music Exploration. Okay. And so what they had, they had violin, cello, and guitar. Mm -hmm. And what it is for a third of the year, you would get to try out the violin. Mm-hmm. And then for a third of the year, you would do the cello. And for a third of the year, you would do the guitar. Yeah. And so you get to try out these different instruments, and they would just show you the basics on them, you know, and all that stuff. Went out that violin, uh, everything was too close together, you know, yeah. too. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't do it. And the bow, and, and uh, it was just, you know, the violin thing didn't work. Yeah, I don't think my, my fingers could really yeah, work the violin I, too I, well. Yeah, That's I, why I, mostly you see smaller people with smaller hands right, playing violin. Yeah, you know, I, I couldn't do it, man. You know, and, and, and I really just had no interest in playing the violin, you know. Guitar at that time did not appeal to me, man. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't get the chord thing, you know. And, you know, when you're talking about something where you're only getting to play it for a few months, yeah. you know, you barely get into learning about it before mm-hmm. you move on to something else. Well, the, the guitar thing was just kind of frustrating for me because it was all these chords. It wasn't just playing notes and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like with the violin or cello or whatever. You had to learn how to make these chords in these weird positions yeah. that your fingers <laughs> didn't want to do and stuff like that. And then hold them down till your fingers got those little grooves in them and started hurting and you know and so i didn't immediately gravitate to the guitar either i hit cello mm-hmm. man i love the cello yeah. for some reason i, I love the way it sounded uh, you know i love that the, the depth of the sound mm-hmm. and everything i love the cello and so the next year when i got to sixth grade and moved over to cleveland school that's when you they started that you could actually join the orchestra like mm-hmm. the school orchestra yeah and you could start training to sixth grade to get in the junior high orchestra when you got to seventh grade at shelby junior high so anyway, if you wanted to be in the orchestra, you know, nobody knew how to play at that time. Mm-hmm. And so you just signed up for whatever instrument you wanted to learn yeah, how to yeah. play. <laughs> well, in my sixth grade mind, I thought, well, if I liked the cello, I would probably really like the upright bass because it's even bigger and oh, deeper yeah, yeah. and everything. You know, I liked that, you know, the warm, that kind of low mm-hmm. sound and everything. So I signed up to learn how to play the bass. So in sixth grade, I started learning how to play classical music on the Mm -hmm. upright bass, you know, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, man. I was way into it. Yeah. And so sometime months after I had been, you know, playing the upright bass, somebody said, well, man, you know, the strings on that thing are exactly the same as an electric bass. And and I'd never thought about that. And Mm -hmm. I said, really? So I went home and I was like, Mom, I want an electric bass for Christmas, (laughs) you know, and so... For Christmas, I ended up getting this area short scale bass yeah. and a little Zap amplifier, you know, from down at Apple Apple Tree yeah. Music from Doug. You yeah, know, that's where my there. first guitar came my from. My first stuff came from Doug. Yeah, I used to love to go down there and hang out. This was back when they were in. It was called the Whistle Stop then, and then it became the Marion Mall, oh, yeah, yeah, Charleston yeah, Place. Yeah. It used to be in there, you know. So that's how far back that was. So I got this bass for Christmas. Well, immediately after I got it, man, there was there must have just been a colossal shortage of bass players at the time Mm -hmm. nobody was playing bass you know and so right after i got it i get a call from these guys in like you know junior high they're like two or three years older than me Mm -hmm. and this guy jeff green he calls me up and goes 
hey, man, I um, heard you play bass. And I was like, well, I mean, I just got one. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've learned some stuff. He's like, hey, man, you want to jam? You know, jamming with this other guy, you know, on guitar. We need a bass player to jam with. And I was like, well, I'll try, man. I've never mm-hmm. jammed with anybody. So, you know, sixth grade, got my mom to take me and the amp and the bass over to his house, you know. And me and him and this other guy sat around and played like, you know, Beatles Day Tripper mm-hmm. and, you know, old ACDC, you know, you know, just all the three-chord stuff yeah, you can yeah. think of, you know. I had a great time. You know, that kind of got me into the jamming with other guys. And that was like a whole nother level of stuff, you know. Mm. So we started this little band called Sabotage. It was me and these guys that were all like three years older than me, you know. All of a sudden, you know, I was playing like parties for like while some high school kids' parents were out of town. Okay, yeah. You know, and we're, we're over there like we're the band playing in these guys' backyards. And I'm like sixth grade, you yeah. know, I'm like sitting here playing it. There's like people down there, you know, throwing up in the backyard and keg stands and whatever else. You know, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, wow, so this is rock and roll, you know, and yeah. I like this, you know. And so it wasn't long after that. Some guys that were my age, you know, were playing guitar and drums and stuff. Mm-hmm. I just started to learn. And so um, the high school guys, they ended up getting a, a high school bass player, yeah. you know, that was more, you know, their age and stuff. Did you ever do any original music with that band or was it all just covers? With that, that one, it was it was pretty much all covers. Yeah, you know, we yeah. were just all trying to figure, you know, just, you know, do stuff. That, I mean, we had a couple little riffs we would jam, but they mm-hmm. never became songs yeah, or yeah. anything, you know. So anyway, there were a couple other guys. By this time, I was... I just started seventh grade and there were uh, some other guys my age and we decided we were going to start us a band. It was um, David Wilson was playing guitar. Mm. You know, David, um, he's passed away. He passed away of um, ALS, Mm. you know, several years ago. Yeah. But David was playing guitar and um, it started off, we were like a three piece and it was me playing bass, David playing guitar and then this guy, Brian Klontz, that was playing drums. And we would kind of share the vocal duties. Brian would sing some, you know, drumming, and I would sing some, you know, on playing bass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we played for a while as a three-piece. And I mean, we, we got some, you know, little gigs. Like, we played the grand... You remember when there was a Kroger's in Shelby? Yeah, yeah. Over yeah. there? Played the grand opening of the Kroger's. Oh, wow. That's how we were the grand <laughs> opening band for Kroger's. So, anyway. <laughs> so now, um, was that cover songs as well? Or did you... Were you no, we were actually that? writing some okay. songs. I, I won't say they were great, but they didn't suck. You know, yeah. we actually... We have it. There's a demo tape out there somewhere. I've got a copy of it, of some original songs. Mm. Uh, Running Free, and not the Iron Maiden Running Free, yeah. but another one that we had written. And, um, I don't know, Dog leg blues and all this stuff you know little songs like that but we were pretty good at you know to be the age we were and stuff but we tended to play stuff that like david's older brother jimmy you know mm. and stuff was into you know so we were uh we were doing you know thin lizzie boys are back in town straight into cowboy song and yeah, stuff yeah. like that you know we really cool song list and that's why david's brother jimmy and his friends would come see us play because they're like you know it's cool to see a bunch of like little seventh grade kids playing a bunch of kiss and thin lizzie yeah. and stuff you know so they were all into it <laughs> well what and, did have you what was the name of this this band this was iron horse. iron horse this okay, was yeah. iron horse this was the first band that i ever had that kind of for that time period and that level, you know, kind of had a, a little bit of success. Yeah. We became popular with all the other kids our age. Yeah. And anytime they needed a band to play at, you know, their party or uh, whatever, you know, they'd get us. And we printed up T-shirts and I would go to school in the morning. Everybody stood out front, you know, before you had to go in in the mm-hmm. morning to get a class. 
I had a bunch of t-shirts printed up, Iron Horse t-shirts, and I would go to school every morning with a duffel bag full of Iron Horse t-shirts, and I would stand out there in front of the school and sell <laughs> t-shirts, you know, to people, and like, you know, leave there with like a hundred bucks oh, or wow. something, I thought, man, you know, this is it, man, rock and roll, you know, and so um, we started playing all these gigs at Kate's Skating Rink, mm-hmm. man, Larry Porter was managing Kate's Skating Rink at the time, and he got really into us, you know, because he thought we were great to be our age and everything and um and by this time brian had moved off the drums just to become a lead vocalist mm-hmm. and we had gotten rodney conley uh which we called him mover to come in and play drums and he was a great drummer he was you know like head of the drum line for the junior mm-hmm. high band and marching band and all that stuff yeah you know he was the, he actually probably knew more what was going on than any of the rest of us <laughs> as far as musically yeah but he's a great drummer man had a great set of tama drums and everything once we got him and we had brian you know who he was trying as hard as he could be to be david lee roth you know he was he, yeah, that was the man at the time oh yeah so yeah. you know he's out there with all the bandanas tied around him and the fringe <laughs> boots and everything you know but we started playing all these gigs at kate's skating rink and it was a lot you know i mean we, we got to where we would pack it out at gates they would bring in this portable stage set it up at one end of the skating rink mm-hmm. we'd bring all this stuff and set it up and play and um it was great man it was like you know there'd be like a hundred screaming nine to 14 year old girls out there you know it was just you know playing the skating rink and stuff and so we did that man we had a lot of fun doing that you know i mean that was the first i guess that was what really set the hook for me was getting the feedback from people you know because i think people that have never played music before don't really understand that the quality of the show you're going to get a lot of times depends on how much you're giving back to the band that's on stage. And I don't think they realize that, Mm. you know, especially now when you go to the place and you, you know, you can't really hear the band for the people sitting around talking and stuff, you know, and they don't realize that if you're, if the audience is into it, and the band can tell the audience is into it. Then the band gets more into oh, yeah. it. it and one better. feeds the other, and it just gets better and better. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things about punk rock, too, that I loved, was the punk rock crowds. Oh, I yeah. mean, they were so into it. you know. But that energy and that energy exchange was kind of what got me to stick with music you know mm-hmm. there was a lot of stuff i had tried I'd, i i tried you know athletics and stuff like that and sucked at yeah, it. Yeah. you know i just wasn't an athletics guy you know two things that i i, I took karate for a while and liked it and did good at mm-hmm. it and, and i was a good swimmer i was on the swim team for a little while yeah and that was the only two athletics i tried football and baseball and i didn't just sucked at all yeah, that yeah. you know i said well <laughs> at least if i had two sports that i enjoyed it's stuff that can save your ass you know because yeah. you know karate and swimming oh, yeah. you know so hey you know so um but it, the music thing, man, when it came around, I knew, I said, okay, this is me. You mm-hmm. know, this is something that is striking me on a different level than any of this other stuff. This this is like something that I feel like I need to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know how, you know, people say, oh, you know, it's like breathing or something like that. You know, it's it really, something yeah. you've got to do. Yeah. You know, and that's what, and when you get to this level where you're talking to other guys that are, you know, in their late 40s, 50s, 60s, or whatever, that are still playing. Still doing it and just for the love of doing yeah, it. Yeah, they're not doing it for the money. There's and no they're money not doing there. It for the, <laughs> there's no money. There's, you know, there's not really any fame other than your friends, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. You're doing it because you enjoy what you're doing, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. and it's just, it's something that if I couldn't do it, I don't know what I would do. I would have so much free time that wasn't you know i don't know what i would do you know and so um the um iron horse thing 
was great, man. That kind of set me down the path of being of wanting to be in something more than just uh, you know a sit around in the bedroom and play. Mm-hmm. That made me want to you know get on stage and be a performer, and it got me into the everything that had to do with being in a band, all the way from. You know, the way it looked to, you know, I mean, we were building light systems out mm-hmm. of six inch PVC pipe and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> you know, building our own stuff. You know, like when we'd play um, big gigs, we had a couple of old sets of scaffolding and we would set them up and we would bring every stereo speaker that we could find from oh, our yeah. house, friend's house, whatever. <laughs> and there'd be like two speakers that actually worked. And then there would be every stereo speaker we could get with the front taken off, stacked up so it looked like the in, the inside of Van yeah. and Diver down, you know. <laughs> so we wanted to, you know, that's, you, you, I just got so into all that stuff, making backdrops. I was making lighted signs. I was making, you know, we were taking like oscillating fans and take the blade off and put a floodlight on top of it so you could have movers that were going <laughs> yeah. back and forth yeah. and stuff you know and uh, you know and it just got so into all that live performing and you know getting on stage and mm-hmm. stuff that was just what did it for me man that was just it was so much fun so you know we we kept iron horse together through um Almost through high school, Mm -hmm. you know, and you know how it is as you get on up in high school and you get closer to graduation and other stuff starts coming in that has to, that occupies so much of your time and stuff like that. It kind of started, you know, being not as frequent and everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were a couple of other little bands that I did around that time that never really turned to anything. There was a band with some great musicians called Runway that I did. They had a female vocalist. We did a lot of Pat Benatar and stuff like that. Yeah. It was a great band, mm-hmm. but just never really went anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And then there was uh, another band, a little three-piece that I did with these two other guys that were all into Motorhead. It was like, it. everything we did, we tried to do a lot of original music, but everything we did sounded like Motorhead. Totally you know, yeah. it was like, you know, and somewhere there's a tape of that, too. I would love to find it, but yeah, uh, yeah that was called Cerberus. Okay. You know, and we had the three-headed dog with light-up red eyes for the backdrop and everything. So, you know, but did that. And then I guess it was during my senior year, you know, John Reed from Shelby Music Center, you know, or John had kind of put together, you know, this is, and this is even, you know, it was like John knew what was coming. And uh, because this was before the era of the... um, put together bands where you know people like you know, we weren't a boy band or yeah, anything yeah. but you know where people like actually hunted out the musicians and put the band together you know and that's what John kind of did with the trust okay yeah I remember and the trust. so the trust you know was already playing as a band before I ever joined on that another singer And I don't know what the deal was with the other singer. I don't really know why they ended up. I don't know if he didn't want to do it anymore or quit or if they just wanted somebody different or I don't know. But anyway, they asked me if I would be interested in coming and uh, just singing, you know, for the trust. And with all the other bands, I'd just been a backup vocalist pretty much. I would sing a couple songs and bass player. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, ever since I started, all I'd been was a bass player. I was just always a bass player. And so this was my first chance to just go be a vocalist. Yeah. And so I said, sure, I'll do it. 
the trust, you know, it was a little bit bigger gigs and, you know, we had a little bit nicer equipment because John owned a music store mm-hmm. and everything. We ended up with a school bus, you know, a big red school bus that we rode around yeah. in. And we did a lot of stuff with Kate Skate Rank and stuff like that. And we played in the I parking lot. out. some of those videos on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's yeah. A, one from like 87 yeah. Yeah, on, on uh, YouTube. And played in the parking lot out at the mall here for something one time. And Went and did some shows up in Gatlinburg at some different places. Uh, we were the first band to ever play at Dixie Electric Company down at Myrtle Beach. Okay. You know, because they had always been kind of a dance club, mm-hmm. and they started deciding to have bands. And the Trust was actually the first band to ever play at Dixie Electric Company back then, you know. And so um, that was fun because, you know, we had a bus and stuff yeah. like that. You, you, know, you felt like you were to another level, you know. You're still riding around school bus, but, you know. Um, but we had a great time doing that. And it was while I was in the trust that I got the opportunity to join Animal Bag. Okay. And before we get to Animal Bag, yeah. let's talk a little bit about, about In the Summer. Because yeah. your, your parents owned that store, right? Yeah, they okay. did, man. Now, how did that kind of come about? And that, that's, that was a really cool place back in, we talked about Cleveland Mall already, mm-hmm. talking about Sound Shop in the summer. Yeah. But I, I go down there on a Saturday and, you know, go to Diamond Gyms and, and, oh, yeah. and go to the arcade for a little while, go to Corn Dog 7, get the cheese oh, on the stick, man. spend some money in Sound Shop, go down to In the Summer and see what kind of T-shirts are good. Find right, yeah, Sex Pistols T-shirts. Yeah, we had cool stuff. T-shirts. Like, this this place is cool. They got all kinds of stuff. Skateboards. Before we could get to yeah. Charlotte, we could find it there. You know? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I bought a skateboard there one time. I spent a lot of money. In oh yeah, we, it was summer was so much fun, man. Because that was my, you know, that was my job through high school was mm-hmm. working there. You know, but the way that came about is every year my family we went to Florida on vacation. Mm-hmm. We went to Daytona Beach every year. We stayed for ten days. And we stayed in the Treasure Island Inn, room 911, every year. Every time. My dad was a creature of habit. Once he found something he liked, yep. he stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And so when we would leave every year, he would go ahead and make the reservation because he wanted the same room and everything, you know. So he would go ahead and make the reservation for next year. And we would go back. With it. I mean, we got to where we knew Daytona Beach, like the back of my, you know, it was like second home. Yeah. Because we were down there, and, you know, stay at the same place. You kind of learn all the stuff around you. And, and it was a cool time to be down there because uh, Ed Rolfe had the rat's hole down there with all the rat fink stuff and mm-hmm. Big Daddy Rat. You could go over there and they'd have a bunch of cool, you know, his choppers and stuff oh, yeah. out in front and stuff yeah, like that. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you got to see all that stuff. It, it was just, you know, it was cool. And so my whole family enjoyed that beach stuff, you know, mm-hmm. so much that I remember one year when we were down there on vacation, we just got to talking and we were like, you know, I wonder how like an inland surf shop would do mm-hmm. around home because we noticed there were so many people from home that, you know, I mean, it's always been like, you know, half of Ocean Lakes down there at yeah. Myrtle Beach is people from Shelby, yeah, exactly. you know, yeah, I yeah. mean, so you always had all these people that you knew that were always buying clothes and stuff because we're getting ready to go to the beach, you know, and stuff. And they're buying, you know, all these, you know, shorts and T-shirts and all that stuff, you know. And so we're thinking, man, you know, maybe we could do this. You know, it'd be a lot of fun. And skateboarding was just, just starting to get hot. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, early, mid-80s, you know, and stuff like that. We just decided that we were going to give it a go. My mom had just... um gotten out of real estate you know she had always sold real estate mm-hmm. dad had always been in plastic plumbing you know he and lb did plastic oddities and stuff you know and he had gotten out of the plastic plumbing at that time and so they were we decided we were going to give it a try mm-hmm. you know we said you know we'll see about you know getting a place out there at the mall or something and we'll see about doing an inland surf shop and so that's what we did we just uh went down to a couple of those uh trade shows and stuff 
started getting all the, you know, beach lines, you know, uh, you know, Billabong and Life's a Beach and Gotcha and all that Six kind of stuff, you know? And all that stuff, yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing was, there was nowhere to get that stuff. You I kind of had to get to the coast before yeah. you started seeing a lot of those names and stuff. I know, seeing those, I'd, I'd see those names in like Thrasher Magazine. Right, yeah, Thrasher, yeah, and, yeah, and all, all that kind of stuff, you know? So we got all our orders in, we got, got a place out at the mall. And we opened Endless Summer. Mm-hmm. And, man, it just hit. Yeah. You know, like r- right away it hit. And um, oh, it was great, man. Uh, you know, people doing, buying skateboards. Well, all of a sudden we had a skating scene around mm-hmm. here. Everybody's skateboarding and stuff. You know, it was, um, you know, it was a blast, man. It, we did, you know, had all the cool surf lines and stuff. And um, got into stage clothes for the musicians yeah, and had, had, you know, the whole spandex and stuff back there. Had a showcase full of patches and stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, like. Just pretty much anything you wanted, like yeah, the kind of stuff that you'd find at maybe Superior Feet in Charlotte and stuff like that. Then right. We later on, exactly. We yeah, at, at, it, yeah. Right we, here in Shelby. Yeah, know? exactly. We were kind of like, uh, uh, what's the one I think? Um, it, it was kind of between a surf shop and a uh, what's the one I'm trying to think of? It's in the malls now. The um, uh, like Hot Topic. Hot Topic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was like a Hot Topic meets a surf shop. Which I mean, Hot Topic is basically just like. Like I said, kind of like a superior feet type place. Exactly, like you guys yeah. did back then. It's and that, it's funny it's because for the masses, you know, when I was in California and I was working for Lip Service, Hot Topic and mm-hmm. Superior Feet Playhouse were both my accounts that I yeah. saw. I was their sales rep, <laughs> so you know. But anyway, um, so we opened in the summer, and man, it, and right away it took off and it did great, mm-hmm. you know. And I mean, we were, you know, it was just like uh, almost overwhelming, but we were having so much fun at it, you know, because we were all enjoying it so much. The whole family was involved in it, mm-hmm. and it was so much fun to, you know, be in business with your family and have it doing well, you know. So it was doing great. And um, when we got in with all these surf lines and everything, you know, they had all promised us exclusives on the line. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, you guys are so far inland. There won't be anybody within miles of you that'll have these lines, you know, because we don't, you know, we don't just sell to anybody. And so, you know, all these lines like, you know, Life's a Beach and Jimmy's and stuff like that. They had told us we had an exclusive on it. Mm-hmm. Well, then all of a sudden, all the surf lines and stuff started getting really popular. Yeah. Next thing you know, Belks has got Jimmy's, mm. Belks has got Life's a Beat, you know, Belks has got everything. And whereas we had been down there at Endless Summer, we didn't have to mark anything down. I mean, we sold, you know, jams and surf stuff all winter. Mm-hmm. We'd have people coming in that were getting ready to go on cruises and stuff in the middle of the winter that would come in and just buy, you know, a boatload of stuff to take on a cruise with them and yeah. stuff. So we were selling stuff all the time and never having to mark it down. Whereas now Belks, you know, when they get in a summer line, if it hadn't sold by June, they're marking everything yeah, half yeah. price. So now, all of a sudden, right in the same mall, we got these guys down here that are marking everything down if it hadn't sold by a certain time and everything. So it, it became almost impossible yeah. for a little independent shop like us to compete because all these li- all the lines that we had had exclusives on started going mainstream mm-hmm. and you know started going into all these you know belts and pennies and stuff like that you know you know that was kind of the writing on the wall we probably should have gotten out of it quicker than we did but you know we were all just like oh you know maybe we could save this thing somehow you know yeah. and everything <laughs> and so you know we strung it along way longer than we probably should have and all that stuff we should have got out you know earlier but the endless summer thing was just so much fun man the mall was happening back then and like you said diamond gems was right across the yeah. hall from <laughs> us man 
And yeah, I, I think kids that didn't grow up in the 80s don't realize really what mall life on Friday oh, yeah. and Saturday nights was like during the 80s. That it wasn't 100 people. It was probably yeah. a 1,000 people packed into that mall between the mall and Putt-Putt and everything down there. Mm-hmm. Just back, It was just, um, you know, at that time... I mean, there was nothing else to do around yeah. here. I mean, that was it. That was your social scene. You, you know, went down there and you hung out and you saw your friends and you met other friends. And right, you know. and you know, found out if there were any parties going on or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, and it was either the mall or you were cruising up and down the strip from Taco Bell to the Burger King and hollering across at people going the other way up. You know, where are you guys going and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. You know, and then if you wanted to get in a fight, you went down to Franklin Boulevard, especially if you had long hair, because you know. If you were a long hair and went down to Franklin and started cruising Franklin, man, instantly people were yelling stuff at you, wanting to, you know, kick your ass or something, you know. So, so we stuck mostly around Shelby, you yeah, know. So I, I mostly stuck the malls because I didn't get into the yeah, cruising thing. So the, exactly. the malls, those malls for me, and then you know, once I got my license, oh yeah, I realized what Charlotte had to offer. It was right. like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, well, because by that, I think by that point, you know, endless summer kind of went away, yeah, and yeah. all the stuff that we that we enjoyed when we were teenagers was going away right yeah the times were changing the mall thing was starting to phase out and stuff you know and so for the for the time it was like i'm so glad that those places were there because they helped foster everything that that i got into as you know as i continued to grow and then you think about how many people that you still correspond with and everything that you met during that period through you know the mall or whatever you know and so i it was a great time kind of got involved in Animal Bag. You said that opportunity presented itself when you were still in the trust. Yeah, it, it was kind of weird because, um, you know, I was I was doing the trust thing and, you know, we were gigging a good bit and, you know, like I said, playing, you know, Gatlinburg and Myrtle Beach and, you know, doing some, for what we were doing at the time and the age we were and everything, mm-hmm. you know, because we're still basically, you know, I mean, this is my senior year of high school and everything. We were having fun, and we, but, you know, the majority of what the trust did was uh, cover stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we had like a couple of original songs, but I was getting more into uh, wanting to write original music. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was really wanting to write songs and stuff like that because I enjoyed it. The trust was more interested in just going out and gigging, mm-hmm. you know, and and having a good time. You know, playing playing what people wanted to hear. Yeah. You know, so I can remember I went to I went to Charlotte to um, Park Elevator. It was at the mm-hmm. time. It was still Park Elevator. Uh, there was a band called Dirty Looks at the time that yeah. was kind of you know kind of ACDC ish yeah, you know eighties band, band yeah. you know so I went to see Dirty Looks and um, saw a girl that I knew from Charlotte there you know we were just like hey what's up catching up and everything she was asking me she's like well you know how's the music going you 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 playing you know and everything and I said yeah yeah so I'm playing with this band called the Trust you know we're doing um, you know playing a good bit you know I said but it's mostly cover stuff i said mm-hmm. i just really wish i could find some guys that were more interested in doing original music and everything mm-hmm. 
She said, I got some friends that are in a band here in Charlotte. And she said, they're looking to replace their lead singer. She said, because they're kind of headed one direction and he's wanting to go another direction, yeah. you know. And, you know, because they were getting into like Jane's Addiction and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And the singer they had at the time was still docking. Yeah, you know, yeah. he wanted to be docking, yeah, you know. So yeah. anyway, they had kind of hit an impasse that it obviously wasn't going to work. And so they were looking for a new lead singer. And she said, you know, a really good band, you know, and everything. And they, you know, got a good following locally. Mm-hmm. She said, I think the drummer's going to be here later. I'll introduce you to him. I said, oh, cool. And so later on, you know, Boo and some of his friends show up. Mm-hmm. And she introduces me to Boo. And um, Boo said, yeah, man, I, you know, love to, you know, see what happens and everything. If you want to come audition, jam, you know. He's like, are you going to the David Lee Roth concert? You know, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be there, man. Yeah. And, you know, so um, fast forward like a week and a half, and uh, the David Lee Roth concert's at the old Coliseum mm-hmm. over there, you know. And uh, so I get a call from Boo. He's like, hey, man, I've got a tape of, you know, some of our songs and stuff that you can kind of listen to, you know, and see if you can learn a couple of them, and we'll get together and jam. He's like, I'll meet you in the tunnel. You know, the tunnel was down there to get down to the floor, you know. And all the, you know, the, the, all the seedier guys hung out in the tunnel. That's where Boo was hanging out. You know, he's in the tunnel. So, uh, so I had to meet him in the tunnel to pick up a um, demo tape of this animal bag mm-hmm. stuff, you know. It was a demo tape they had recorded at uh, CPCC. And so I picked up this tape go home and I start listening to songs, you know, and learning, trying to memorize lyrics and learn them and all this stuff and figuring out how I'm going to sing them because, you know, the guy they had was one of those, you know, and I I couldn't do all that stuff, you know, man. So I had to kind of figure out my approach to, you know, to the the songs and stuff. Ended up, you know, I go over to Boo's house where they jam and uh, walk in and um, they got everything, you know, set up and, you know, kind of Boo's grandmother's living room was the jam room. Okay. You know, uh, Boo lived with his grandparents, uh, C.W. and Ruth, and Boo had the basement downstairs, and then C.W. and Ruth lived upstairs, Mm -hmm. and then his uncle, uh, Jimmy Duckworth. Now, Jimmy was pretty well-known on the Charlotte scene, you know, as a guitar teacher, and, you know, know, great jazz guitarist and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And so uh, Jimmy was there a lot of the time. I don't know that Jimmy actually lived there, but Jimmy uh, had a room upstairs that he talked guitar out of mm-hmm. and stuff. And then, like, Boo's aunt or somebody, there was a bunch of people living in this house. It was a big house. And yeah. so everybody, it was kind of split up. And so people were living in different parts of the house. But the entire living room was a drum stage with Boo's giant drum kit and PA and bass guitar half stacks and stuff and all this stuff you know just kind of done in a circle mm-hmm. in um in boo's living room and so i went over there to jam and there was always like five or six people over there just hanging out drinking beer and everything you know watching them jam and everything yeah. and so i walked in and he said well um what song you want to do i said man just let me know he said well which ones have you learned i said learned all of them man i said whichever one you want to do he's like you learned all of them i was like yeah <laughs> i said i'm ready i said pick one you know yeah. and so i don't remember what the first song was but you know they 
flew into it and I sang it and it went great, you know. And the people that were sitting there that knew the band and everything were like, you know, that's great, you know. You know, they just, they felt like it was, you know, meant to be type thing, you know, too. That's cool. You got an audition with not just the band, but some impartial people. Yeah, pretty hardcore fans of theirs that hung out with the band and stuff and that were actually friends with the old singers. So, you know, you kind of had to win them over. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, but everything went good, like right from the get-go. And, um, you know, they were real happy with everything. And and uh, so at the end of the practice that night, you know, Boo was like, man, I mean, if you want the job, you got it. Mm. And I was like, hell yeah, I want it, you yeah. know. And so anyway, like the next day, I get a call from Boo. He's like, hey, man, can you be ready in seven days to open for Crocus? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man. <laughs> you yeah. Know? And so that was my first gig was at um, – I think it was, I can't remember if it was still the park elevator or if it changed to 1313 yeah. by then, but you know, but we opened for Crocus over mm-hmm. there. Everybody showed up, you know, because Boo and them, you know, they knew everybody in Charlotte, you know, because everybody had been to Boo's house to party, yeah. you know, and everything. So um, everybody that was at the show was just there to see what the new singer for Animal Bag was like because mm-hmm. they already had this fan base and everything. And, you know, so. The response was great, man. It was it was phenomenal response on the first show, and I can remember when we got done, we took got our stuff off stage, got loaded up, and Boo was like, you know, party, you know, my place, you know, and everybody just loaded up and like everybody left, and Crocus was left playing to like seventy people oh, or wow. something like that. Everybody <laughs> just left to go to the party at Boo's house, and you know, we just went over to Boo's house, had this giant party, and everybody from the club came over there. That was like the, you know, okay, you're part of the group now, yeah, yeah. you know, and um, it was funny because, you know, this all happened so quick because I graduated in 87 and was still playing with the trust. Mm-hmm. And then I guess it was probably 88, sometime in 88 that I started jamming with Animal Bag. And then at the end of 89 was when we moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. So I really only played around Charlotte with Animal Bag for like a year, yeah. you know. It felt like longer because I was meeting so many people, man. You know, it's funny because there's so many people that I kind of remember them from that time, you Mm -hmm. know, but I was meeting so many people from that because I wasn't part of that Charlotte scene being here in Shelby and everything. You know, I just never crossed paths with all of them. So all of a sudden I'm meeting all these people from the Charlotte music scene and stuff, you know, all these different bands and stuff like that. I'm trying to remember everybody and everything. And then we ended up moving to Los Angeles (laughs) and all of a sudden, you know, it's like, you know, we'd come back and it's like, yeah, dude, do you remember partying with me over at Boo's house? I was like, probably, dude. You know, I, you know, I was like, it's like, it all came at me so quick, you know. And um, so Boo had told me when I joined the band, he said, well, dude, we kind of got a, you know, a game plan. He's mm. like, we want to, you know, go somewhere. He's like, you know, I just don't think we're ever going to do anything staying here. Mm. He's like, I think we need to go somewhere that we can get the attention from people that could actually do something Unfortunately, for us. Unfortunately, that's the way Charlotte is. It's like, you yeah. kind of have to move away from Charlotte to get, like Morbid Angel had to move away uh, yeah, from Charlotte exactly. to get big. You know, yeah, every, exactly. Everybody just kind of has to move away from Charlotte to to, to get noticed. <laughs> exactly. Nobody's and, like looking for it here. Yeah, nobody's looking for it. And, and what was so wild is that Charlotte had such a great music scene at the mm. time, man, because still does. Uh, Charlotte's always, oh, had, it's good, always had a good, good always you know, like great musicians, great, great music that kind of just plays by its own rules. You know? Yeah. And I've always wondered why, you know, you, ha- you have scenes pop up around Chapel Hill and all this stuff, but there's never been that really that big, mm. 
you know, scene that's popped up around Charlotte. Charlotte just has a lack of, I don't know if it's a lack of college. I think, a, like, UNC Charlotte's out there, but it's like, it's a commuter college, and it's right, kind of exactly. out in the middle of nowhere. Right. But there's not really that college scene. Right, exactly. One. And but I guess that, that may be part of it. You know, and then you've got these bands that were, you know, were hot at the time that, I mean, like, I'm thinking about, um, you know, at that time, you know, uh, Annie scene, of course, they mm-hmm. were, still, you know, doing it even back then. But, you know, you had bands like, you know, Hope Nichols Fetching Bones yeah, and all that yeah. stuff that was happening back then. You mm-hmm. know, there were all these great bands, but it just seemed like, you know, they weren't getting any attention other than locally. Yeah. But the local scene was all, was really good back then because uh, the guys that were friends with us and everything, you know, we were all trying to kind of help each other out. Mm-hmm. We were doing a lot of shows with God's Water and, yeah. you know, uh, you know, and then there was those other bands like Kudzu Ganja and mm-hmm. all those other guys that were, you know, and, um, yeah, that were happening about that time. And we were, it, it's like it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a competitive type thing. It was like, you know, we were all friends and we would just, you know, try to do shows together. It was so much fun. Some people say that's the problem with Charlotte is yeah. that it's not competitive enough that everybody's too good of friends and get along too well. Hey. I don't know. I mean, I'd, uh, yeah. I'd, I'd rather just enjoy it and have, I have mean, a good too. time. And, yeah. and, and have this great scene that you feel like supportive, you know, yeah, and everything. Be competitive with everybody and feel like you've got to do this before they do or get bigger right. than they yeah, are. Right, yeah, exactly. And um, so, you know, the, the, the Charlotte scene was so cool and everything, but Boot was right. You know, we, we weren't going to get the kind of attention that we needed there. You know, mm-hmm. we could have played around there for years and nothing probably ever would have happened, yeah. you know. So they had decided they were either going to New York or going to Los Angeles, mm-hmm. one or the other, you know. Well, it started checking in and you know the new york thing was just so expensive because you know mm. the way that you know the way new york's laid out and the way real estate is and apartments and everything mm-hmm. everything was just i mean la was expensive but new york was even more oh, yeah. and yeah. then you know trying to find somewhere if you had a car mm-hmm. finding somewhere to park a car and stuff like that you know so we decided we were going to do los angeles instead you know we decided that's what we were going to do so we kind of set our goal mm-hmm. of by you know okay I'm, we're going to move around this time you know and we're going to move out there and we're just going to see what we can do you know we're yeah. going to go for it and so we started saving up money and all that stuff and um and ended up you know moving to los angeles and we didn't know what we were going to do we actually ended up knowing a couple of people out there because um the fenton brothers were out there playing with um shot howard you know which mm-hmm. was another guy you know um, howard uh was it rosenberg or whatever but out of charlotte but there were several charlotte guys that were out there yeah, kind of yeah. doing some stuff at the time so we you know we kind of we moved out there and just kind of started hanging out with the people we knew that were out there and everything and boo and them went out like a couple of weeks before the rest of us went out to go ahead and get at least an apartment mm-hmm. to where when the rest of us moved out we could crash on the floor or something until we could find a place to live and stuff like that mm-hmm. so that's what we did when we moved out there, we crashed on Boo's floor for, you know, Boo had already got a place. We were on his floor for like, you know, a week. Yeah. You know, sleeping, sleeping bags and stuff, you know, doing whatever. And, you know, before we got our own places and then figured out what we were going to do for a living, you know, mm-hmm. while we were out there and stuff like that, which I got really fortunate on that because Boo's girlfriend at the time had gotten a job working for the um, lip service retail store down on Melrose. They had just like, you know, a retail store there. And she's like, well, I heard they're looking for somebody down at the warehouse. I was like, really? And so, you know, went and tried to get this warehouse job. And sure enough, I ended up getting a job down at the lip service warehouse in East L.A. down in Boyle Heights, in a horrible part of town. But, um Ended up getting a job with that, and you know, it's rock and roll clothing line. You yeah. know, yeah, it's great. I remember the ads in like the back of Metal Edge. And yeah, Rip exactly. Magazine. And Rip and yeah. Hit Parader and all that stuff. Yeah, but I got that job 
like a week after I moved to Los Angeles, kept the same job the whole time I was there until we got signed, you know, so, but it was a lot of fun because I got to meet all these different rock and roll stars that would come down to the warehouse to get, you know, clothes before tours Mm -hmm. and say, you know, you had like Tammy from, you know, Faster Pussycat was down there all the time. The guys from, you know, Tracy Guns was down there Mm -hmm. all the time. He and Drew were good friends, you know, because Drew, the guy that owned the company, he uh, had always been into that kind of whole punk rock and he was... He's actually in Decline of Western Civilization Part 1. Okay. And he's in um, Suburbia. Suburbia. Or, or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah. And he's one of the guys walking, the, the punk rockers that are walking on the front. You know, but okay. Drew, Drew yeah. used to be in a band called Crucifix that oh, was yeah. a fairly popular punk band yeah, yeah. and stuff, you know. But Drew started lip service out of his mom's garage, you know, just started printing like T-shirts and stuff mm. like that and selling them. And it grew into that company, you know, and everything. And so when I started working with them, I, I just started on down there as a um, in shipping, mm. you know, I was just packing boxes and all that stuff. But then I kind of moved up and started doing sales, you know, got on the phone. And then I started, you know, being like, I, I got up to where I was like a distribution manager and I was over like sales and shipping and uh, would go to um, New York twice a year to do trade shows or go mm-hmm. to Las Vegas to do trade shows and all this stuff. So, you know, it was cool because I'm oh, getting, yeah. uh, you know, to go to these places and meet all these rock and roll people. And, uh, you know, I, I get to, um, you know, like I can remember when Peter Frampton was touring with Bowie, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, it, you know, it's like they would go, you know, Peter Frampton's on the phone, see what all he needs. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'm like on the phone with Peter Frampton, yeah, you know, get together, what you know. And uh, I remember when we did, we'd have to send stuff to, you know, Guns N' Roses, and we'd send stuff to uh, Skid Row and all these other mm-hmm. bands, you know. It was cool, man, because you got to be a part of that scene. And we were just talking about uh, Ricky and Cat House and yeah. everything, you know. Lip Service did fashion shows and stuff down at the Cat House. Got to meet, you know, Ricky and all those guys. You know, so it was it was cool. It was and it's cool because this was before Animal Bag was signed that I was doing all this. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of foreshadowing a lot of these people that I would meet again yeah. once Animal Bag got signed. Yeah, you know, yeah. so uh, it was kind of cool. I had a cool job, you know, um, and uh, you know there was a lot of cool stuff that happened because you know, because I moved out to L.A. I was 19 when I moved out there, mm-hmm. you know, and like when we were playing gigs and stuff around L.A., there was a lot of clubs that wouldn't even let me stay in there. I could go in and play the show and yeah, then I'd go straight yeah. back out because I wasn't drinking age, mm-hmm. you know, and everything. It was really cool because uh, playing that whole L.A. scene and everything, meeting all these cool people. And then it, it's funny because even ended up meeting my wife, who is from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. In Los Angeles, yeah. because you know I had moved out there to play with a band. Well, she had moved out there, uh, her and her sister. She had moved out there to try to get into the record label end of it. Okay, and she ended up working for Metal Blade. She yeah. worked for Metal Blade for years oh, before wow, we ever yeah. came back. You know, working with you know Guar and all those guys and everything. She, but um, you know, we met out there through her sister in like eighty nine or ninety, and um, been together ever since yeah. you know so you know it, it was pretty wild that you end up meeting somebody from north carolina in los angeles yeah. you know so um but the the whole la thing just you know the whole band thing living out there the difference in the culture the difference in the you know in everything just kind of ended up i was at that age 1920 you know where you're starting to form a lot of your opinions on mm-hmm. things and a lot of your you know ideals and you know what have you and all that kind of stuff and so 
my ideology is more West Coast Los Angeles yeah, yeah. because that was my formative years for that kind of stuff than it is deep south, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, coming back here, I have a lot of opposing, you know, political oh, yeah, yeah. views and stuff <laughs> like that. But it's just, you know, it's just who I am, man, mm-hmm. because, you know, of where I lived at that time and the people I was working with and everything else. I think unless you've lived in California, you don't really know what kind of impact living on California and living in that diverse a culture yeah, where you're, you're where you know it all the way from the food to the people you're riding the bus with or whatever mm-hmm. it's just it's so so vastly know, different vastly different especially yeah exactly you know it, it was so so different and that was the first time I'd ever lived away from home was mm-hmm. moving to Los Angeles and stuff you know so California had a big impact on me not only with you know who I am just as a person but it, you know that had a real impact on everybody at Animal Bag as far as our music woke up this morning felt the sunlight on my face somehow I'm still here in this same old place too late to wonder if I made the right choice talk to myself until I'm sick of my own voice still I wonder if this change done me good Because when we moved out there, it was a really interesting time to be there because the whole Sunset Strip hair metal thing was starting to fade out. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of, I mean, we had, there were some bands like, you know, Jane's Addiction and stuff like that that were starting to do good. But it was kind of like we were out there kind of in that weird period that was the changing of the guard between Mm -hmm. hair metal and like um, what would later become like grunge and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And so you're getting all these really different bands, you know, there's all the, there's everything from, you know, the funk metal thing that went on for a little while, you know, to Mm -hmm. um, just all this stuff that's going on because nobody really knew what the next thing was going to be, you know? So there's all these really different bands playing everywhere and you could go out every night and go see a different band at different clubs. And then there were all these different clubs that you wanted to go to because you had heard about them like Raji's and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, that had a, you know, big reputation with, you know, the whole kind of underground music scene and stuff. And so, you know, you would go see all these different bands and it was just so different than what was going on in North Carolina. And it was cool because nobody was really trying to follow any kind of scene because nobody really knew what the next bandwagon was going to be to jump on, you know? And, you know, we saw it when it kind of started happening, Mm -hmm. you know, with bands kind of like Stone Temple Pilots and stuff like that, you know, because I remember when we first moved out there, they were Mighty Joe Young until they got signed. And then they couldn't use that name anymore because of the people that owned the copyrights Mm -hmm. for the movie. And so they changed their name and stuff like that. But, you know, that was the whole kind of we could hear that kind of more stripped down, you know, Seattle sound starting to come in and stuff like that, you know. Uh, You know, what we were doing, we just kind of expanded on what we kind of already started in Charlotte. You know, Mm -hmm. the the thing with Animal Bag, it was a bunch of really good musicians. And the one thing we had that kind of made us different from a lot of the other bands was that we had three really good vocalists in the band. Mm -hmm we all had a real good grasp of harmonies and stuff like that. So doing all the harmonies and kind of stuff like, you know, it made us a little bit different from the other stuff that was going on. And we still didn't shy away from writing a 
you know, 12 minute long song with, you know, three different key changes and nine different tempo changes mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. I, I can remember Steve Fenton, one of the guys that was out there from from Charlotte. Yeah. He's like, man, you guys piss me off because he said, you'll be playing a song and you'll go into this riff that's like the coolest riff in the world. And you'll play it for like two bars, and then you just never go back to it. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, and I'm like, well, what, what about that riff, though? You know what? You know, and so you know, we're just out there. I mean, but we're you know we're practicing, practicing. We got us a lockout rehearsal studio over in North Hollywood, and it's just like that was just part. You know, you'd go do whatever you did for your day job, and then that evening you were practicing, mm. and it was like practice like five, six days a week. I yeah, mean, we were yeah. just practicing all the time because that's what we were there for. You oh, know, yeah. that would make sense. Yeah, and so we just practiced and practiced and practiced and wrote and practiced to change things around and, you know, tore songs apart and took pieces of them and made them into new songs and did all this, you know. Were you doing a lot of gigs at the time? or We, we were doing some. I mean, yeah, of course, at that time, we, we were still trying to figure out how the L.A. scene worked. Yeah, we did, the, we did the pay-to-play thing one time. Mm-hmm. And... If we had to do it one time, I'm glad we did it where we did it because mm-hmm. we did it at Gazzari's. Okay, and yeah. that was the one that's time. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> that's the only time we ever played Gazzari's. Yeah. And I'm glad that, you know, at least we got to play yeah, Gazzari's, yeah. you know. But um, we started finding out the more we you know, befriended other bands and stuff that there were there were ways to get around this pay-to-play thing mm-hmm. where you weren't having to sell all these tickets and all this stuff, you know. And so we, we started playing a lot of, I guess what would be considered the not necessarily smaller clubs, but the less mainstream clubs, mm-hmm. you know, that booked a lot of kind of different stuff and everything. There was a lot more alternatives type stuff yeah. playing there. We got in real good at uh, a place called Club Lingerie that did a lot of, you know, really good stuff. I remember seeing everybody from, you know, Urge Overkill to the Goo Goo Dolls mm-hmm. and stuff there, you know, back in the day. And, um, so we, you know, we played that Molly Malone, some of these other kind of smaller clubs that we could play without having to, you know, sell tickets yeah, and yeah. all that and come out of pocket. You know, you know, we weren't making any money, but nobody, nobody in LA was making any money playing. You know, you were just trying to break even, mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. trying to get somebody to notice you. And so, um, you know, we got to where we were playing these places, and we started building up a little following. But honestly, man, we never really had a big following in LA before mm-hmm. we got signed you know it, it wasn't that you know we were you know a household word where we big draw on the Sunset Strip it was nothing like that you know I mean a lot of people had never even heard of us you know yeah. we got a couple of you know write ups in you know Rock City News and BAM and a few of those things we'd get little articles written up in us mm-hmm. you know on stuff it wasn't the kind of thing where we were packing out clubs you know or anything like that we ended up getting more of a reputation with industry people mm-hmm. because they were like you know oh you got to check this band out man they got all these harmonies and they're like the sound for it to be basically a three piece because mm-hmm. you know there were you know it was Otis Boo and Rich playing on the music I was just yeah, for yeah. the most part just a front man I'd play you know it got to where I'd play guitar on a few songs and stuff mm-hmm. like that you know ma- mainly acoustic but um what we were doing was different enough from what everybody else was doing, and we never really kind of fell into trying to sound like the stuff that was going on yeah, out yeah. there or anything like that. We just kind of did our thing, you know. So we started getting more of a reputation with industry kind of people mm-hmm. than we did, you know, just club goers and stuff like that. There was a woman that had seen us that started kind of managing us, mm-hmm. you know, not long after we moved out there. She was actually really cool, and she just saw a lot of potential in the band. It wasn't that she, you know, she never made any money off of us or anything like that. But uh, Meredith Day 
was the woman that was uh, managing us at the time. And she did a lot for us to kind of get us to where people were seeing us and the right people were seeing us and stuff like that. She helped us take that next step, you know, even though Meredith, she wasn't a big management company or anything. She was more of a photographer than anything. She was a really good photographer. But Meredith had been out there in Los Angeles for forever. And Meredith was a musician. She had been part of the whole kind of 60s folk scene out okay. there and everything Meredith had. She was friends with... um Oh, like the you know the band and stuff like that. You know, back yeah. in the day, you know, the people that there um, there used to be a rehearsal place out there called the Alley. That was where you know a lot of those people from that scene right then back at that time used to practice and hang out. It was mm -hmm. like um, the guys from the band, the guys from Little Feet, Linda okay. Ronstadt, yeah. some of the Eagles. You know, all those guys. You know, that scene mm -hmm. uh, uh, used to hang out together, and you know, and Meredith, you know, kind of was on the outskirts of that scene and everything. She knew a lot of people. And she just really liked us and thought we were talented and everything. And so Meredith did a lot to help us, you know, help us out. And Meredith was the one that kind of ended up getting us hooked up with the bigger management company that handled us while we were signed and everything. Mm -hmm. But Meredith was friends with people like the woman that booked uh, the Troubadour mm -hmm. and stuff like that. She was good friends with them. So we ended up playing, you know, we'd play the Troubadour a lot, you know, yeah. down there and stuff like that. So, you know, we started getting this reputation that, you know, with a lot of the industry people just talking to one another that, you know, it, yeah, this band's really different and they're really good. You should go see them, you know. So we ended up, uh, this guy, Bobby Carlton, kind of, uh, Bobby's brother was the doorman at Club Lingerie, where okay. we played a lot, you know. And so we kind of met Bobby through that, you know. And then Bobby had always kind of been involved in the music industry with a bunch of different labels, you know, just like all those guys that are trying to get established and that mm -hmm. they kind of move around from little label to little label until they kind of hit with something. Yeah. Well, he had been through, I think Bobby worked at, you know, Interscope and several other little smaller labels, you know. So he finally ends up over at Mercury. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the bands that he signed at Mercury that ended up kind of hitting for him was Ugly Kid Joe. Yeah. Bobby signed Ugly Kid Joe. And the Ugly Kid Joe thing, you know, kind of took off with the I hate everything about yeah, you yeah. and all that kind of stuff, you know. And so once Ugly Kid Joe kind of started having some success and all that stuff, then all of a sudden everybody started listening to what Bobby had to say, yeah. you know, because, oh, he signed Ugly Kid Joe, you know, and everything. So, you know, Bobby knows what he's doing. So um, Bobby got into us and Bobby liked us a lot. And Bobby actually wanted to sign us back when he was with Interscope. But he couldn't get the guys at Interscope into us. They didn't get it, and it wasn't their thing. Yeah. So he moves over to um, Mercury and has some success with Ugly Kid Joe. And Bobby, you know, just keeps coming to shows. He's like, you know, and, and we knew he wanted to sign us. You know, Bobby, you know, Bobby was really cool. Bobby was always, you know, into us and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so finally, he gets Bob Scoro, the head of uh, Mercury Records at the time. And he gets, he's like, got to come check out this band with me. You know, he's like, he's like, I love this band. You need to see him. So finally, he gets Bob to come out to a show at Club Lingerie. Well, the show at Club Lingerie, this particular show, we were pissed off, man, because what had just happened, there was an A&R person at Warner Brothers mm -hmm. that kind of started coming to some shows and expressing some interest in us and everything. And so they had gotten us into some stuff with Warner Brothers. Like we went and did an acoustic set 
in Ted Templeman's office okay. over there at Warner Brothers yeah. and stuff, you know. And anyway, ended up with the Warner Brothers people actually showing some, you know, pretty serious interest in us to the point that they rented by this point that place I was talking about, the alley. It was like a rehearsal studio. It was split up into there was like a big room and then several smaller rooms and mm-hmm. stuff over there. And uh so they rented out some space at the alley for us to practice and everything and then do a showcase for Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. We were actually sharing a practice room over there with uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They oh, were getting wow. ready for some tour. <laughs> they were never there when we were there, yeah. but their stuff was there, you know, and yeah. like I remember Flea had just had one of his kids had just been born and there was always a stool sitting over by the base app with like a book about parenting and stuff that yeah. Flea had been reading and stuff, <laughs> you know. Uh, anyway, we ended up doing this showcase for Warner Brothers mm-hmm. and played for, you know, just a whole bunch of their A&R people and everything. They had had us kind of on a lockdown while they were paying for all this stuff for us, you know, for the rehearsal space and mm-hmm. to do the showcase and all that stuff. We couldn't talk to other labels. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't, you know, because, you know, we were kind they of... They got some money invested. Right, in yeah. So we're, they were, we're paying we, for this, so you can't talk to anybody else. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's where we were. And so we spent, you know... Three months or so just tied up with Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to talk to anybody else or anything else. We did this great showcase for them. Everything was looking great. We just knew we were going to sign to Warner Brothers, you know. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it was just like, we pass. Oh, wow. No, ex- no excuse. No, nothing. Yeah, you know, just, just kind of, <laughs> we pass. And, of course, we were free to talk to people again then. And so we had a show the next day at Club Lingerie. And so at this point, we're just like, you know, screw it. You know, screw all these guys. Screw this whole scene. Screw the record business. You know, screw it all. You know, we're just, you know, to that point with everything. You know, we're frustrated. And so that night at Club Lingerie, we did this. It was a really intense kind of dark set and everything. And we were pissed off. And it was just, you know, you know, just kind of a really aggressive in your face show, you know. And we didn't even know that Bobby had brought Bob Scoro to the show to see us yeah. that night. But we got up there, and I mean, it, it was a great show, man, mm-hmm. because we were just fueled by that yeah. not giving a shit, yeah. you know. And so um, did this show, and Bobby said he stood there, and that Scoro was just standing there watching us, you know. And he said um, towards the end of the show that Bob leaned over and tapped him on the shoulder and said, if you want them, get them. Mm-hmm. And so the next day, Bobby called us up and was like, dude, Scoro's all into you guys. You know, Uh, he gave me the okay to go ahead and start talking about if you guys are interested in a deal with, you know, Mercury, Mm -hmm. you know, we're like, hell yeah, we're interested. You know, that's when everything got started, got the ball rolling on that. And actually, when we started talking about this whole deal, they said, you know, well, you guys are a little bit different from the other stuff that's on Mercury yeah, yeah, because you know Mercury at that time was you know Kiss and Scorpions mm-hmm. and Bon Jovi and stuff like that and they said what we want to do if we can get permission to do it they said we've got this label that's you know just kind of a subsidiary or just really a name mm-hmm. under Mercury yeah. called Stardog Records yeah. and he's there like he's like it was you know started by the uh, guys from Mother Love Bond yeah, and uh, we were way into Mother Love Bone, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, the Pearl Jam thing had just started and all that stuff, you know. And what it was with Stardog, the guys, the the surviving members of uh, Mother Love Bone, 
had to give their blessing for anything to be released on Star Dog. That mm-hmm. was like their deal, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so we demoed a bunch of songs and stuff like that, and they took it to the guys from you know Pearl Jam at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, it had become and let them hear it, and they gave their blessing for the Animal Bag album to be released on Stardog. Yeah. So that was cool because it kind of gave us, you know, to where we didn't have to fit in or we didn't have to, you know, be kind of a part of that Mercury scene so much. We were kind of more alternative on this little smaller label with an association to Mm. some other really cool bands and stuff like that, you know, so that was cool. We ended up, you know, I mean, the record deal was actually with, you know, Mercury, Polygram, whatever, you know. Our attorney was the greatest. We had this guy, Henry Root, that was our attorney. He's now the attorney for Viacom, Mm -hmm. handles all the stuff for VH1 and MTV and all that stuff, you know. But Henry was just the coolest music attorney ever. And um, Henry really helped us out on a lot of stuff as far as, you know, um, legal stuff and everything. And what you could realistically go for and what you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, let's don't do that, you know, yeah. let's don't ask for that, you know, and stuff. So it ended up, you know, when we structured the record deal, I mean, we really didn't ask for much. We asked for mutual blocking rights, which mm-hmm. was basically if they wanted us to do something and we weren't into it, we could say no. And if we were into stuff, we wanted to do something and they weren't into it, they could say no. Okay, so we could yeah. sit there and look at each other all day and get nothing done, you know, if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, but it at least kept us. We didn't want to get into a situation where we were having to do some stuff that we weren't really yeah, comfortable exactly. with, you know. Yeah. And so we got that. And then the other thing we asked for in our record deal, because we were all such rush heads and they were on mm-hmm. Mercury, we asked for each band member wanted CD copies of the full Rush catalog. <laughs> we asked for that. And we got it. So yeah. when we got signed, we had to go up to the attorney's office and all sit at this big table and sign things. And they had four stacks of Rush CDs for us. And so we got our Rush CDs and stuff, you know. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I look back at how naive we were about record deals and publishing deals and everything at the time. I guess the way we handled ourselves, it really wasn't bad because we weren't concerned at all about money mm-hmm. at the time. We were more concerned about keeping your artistic rights mm-hmm. and you know keeping the rights to your music and stuff like that. We weren't interested in selling off our publishing rights mm-hmm. and all that stuff. You know, a lot of people, since they got signed, they'd sign a publishing deal too. Yeah. And that's where they get the money to go buy amps and a car and everything mm-hmm. else was from the publishing deal, you know. I always said, nah, nah, we're not going to sign a publishing deal. You know, we were planning to have a 20-year career, <laughs> you know, I mean. And so we, we were like, I don't care how much money is involved, we're keeping our publishing, you know. And so we did. Well, I've been living in the city when the days are shitty and the nights can be so long. So now I gotta break away from my same old every day. I'm headed back where I belong. It's what I gotta do. Gotta tell them all and stick it where the sun don't shine. record deal thing you know when it happened then everything yeah i mean everything changes almost immediately you know because i had to quit my job at lip service and everything else Mm -hmm. and uh then you've got to figure out you know there's a bunch of stuff that you don't think about like 
how are you going to pay your bills and stuff while you're recording an album? Yeah. You know, before you're able to really go out and tour and all that. Mm. You know, how do you keep money coming in and stuff like that? You know, they budgeted in for a little living allowance for us while we were recording mm. and stuff like that. But, you know, we're living hand to mouth. You know, I mean, it's, you know, this is not the kind of thing where we got, you know, any kind of oh, big yeah. advances yeah, yeah. or anything like this. You know, we just went on kind of doing our thing, you know, and, um, so uh, the first album, we didn't have a whole lot of a budget because, you know, we were different and we weren't, you know, there was nothing really else like us for them to compare it to as far as the level of success they thought they might have yeah, with it. So you no, know? Nothing really based what, what, right. what they could do with this or what might come back from this. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so they, so, you know, of course we didn't have a big budget on anything, you know, like the first album, um, it was actually recorded on a mobile truck in a rehearsal studio. Mm-hmm. We did the whole thing, tracked it, mixed it, everything in seven days. We, you know, a, a lot of the stuff on that first album, like vocally, guitar, everything is what you hear is first take. Yeah. You know, it's just like, good enough, let's go to the next yeah. one. You know, I mean, we had to, you know. I still like to do it that way. I do too, man. <laughs> I, I, you know, and I, in fact, I think, you know, a lot of it on that first album got a little bit too polished out. Mm-hmm. And the guy that recorded it, Super great guy, Guy Charbonneau. And he's got a mobile truck called Le Mobile, mm-hmm. and uh, still has the truck. Still goes out. He's recording. He's just recording like Garth Brooks last okay. week or something, yeah. you know. And um, but a fantastic little you know mobile truck. And uh, it's it's actually the truck that recorded Exit Stage Left for Rush. Oh, wow. And yeah. it recorded Dylan and the Dead and, yeah. and you know, all, all a bunch of that, you know, big stuff you've heard. That's, you know, the truck that recorded our first album. Mm-hmm. He had a studio place where he parked the truck in a big roll-up bay. He would pull the truck in there. And then he had several different little isolation rooms there, you know, right off of the bay where he pulled the truck in. Mm -hmm. And he could run snakes out of the truck, you know, audio snakes out of the truck to the little isolation rooms and do Mm -hmm. track in there. It was like having a studio, only the control room was mobile, you know. (laughs) So, you know, that's where we ended up recording the album. It's funny because, you know, I was talking earlier about, you know, the, a lot of the people I met during the lip service day kind of foreshadowing people I would meet again mm. during the animal back, you know, on that first album. I remember there, there was a, a song uh, where we wanted some keyboards, but we wanted it to sound like, you know, Deep Purple, mm-hmm. you know, but there was no Hammond B3 there. But he did have uh, some sort of little Hammond. It was like a C something or another. It was more of a church organ yeah. than it was, you know, a B3. And so we're trying to figure out how to make this thing sound like, you know, deep purple. And um, I don't know anything about a drawbar organ, you know, yeah. I, you know, or anything like that. And Guy, the guy that, you know, owned the recording truck and everything, he didn't really know about it. But there were a couple other people in that same little complex where he was that had lockout rehearsal spaces there where they would rehearse, you know, for tours and stuff mm-hmm. like that. One of those people was Peter Frampton. Okay. He had a studio there in the same building. And so Guy, he was a, you know, very heavy French Canadian, you know, every, everything was, you know, the very heavy French accent, yeah. you know, and everything. <laughs> and so um, we were talking, you know, I was talking about this keyboard sound, you know, and how we could get it. And Guy says, ah, Peter will be here later. He knows all about these things. We will talk to him. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, cool. We're going to talk to Peter Frampton, you know. <laughs> and so sure enough, later on in the day. You know, Peter Frampton's there. Mm-hmm. And so Guy explains to him what we're wanting to do. He's like, oh, yeah, man. And so he comes over and, like, I'm sitting on a 
piano bench at this organ with Peter Frampton sitting on the bench oh, right wow. next to me, like showing me how a drawbar organ works and everything and how we could get close to it, you know, yeah. and everything. And so, you know, he helps me out with all this. Well, you know, by this time we're doing overdubs and everything. We've done all the basic tracks, you know. So all the rhythm stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that Boo and Otis are involved with is done. So they've got this little kitchen kind of lounge thing there. And so it's basically, you know, me doing vocals, Rich doing guitar overdubs, this keyboard stuff, you know, whatever mm-hmm. overdubs we were doing. And so while we're doing all this overdub stuff, Boo and Otis has just been you know, drinking and hanging out, you know, just kind of partying and watching the TV and, you know, drinking beer all day, you yeah. know, and, you know, because they're done with their parts. And so the Peter Frampton thing, you know, happens and, um, you know, Peter's getting ready to leave and it's uh, me and Guy and uh, somebody else standing there talking to Peter Frampton, yeah. you know. Well, this is not Frampton Comes Alive, Peter Frampton. This is, you know, early 90s Peter Frampton mm-hmm. with thinning hair that's, you know, it's a different Peter Frampton, yeah, you know. <laughs> so, um, but it's funny because he's getting ready to leave. And here comes Otis out of the lounge. You know, Otis has you know, been drinking beer and stuff all day. <laughs> So we're saying our goodbyes to Peter Frampton. And so I was, I was like, you know, well, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. You know, it was great. Yeah, I really appreciate the help. Thanks, mm-hmm. you know, and everything. And so Otis just kind of comes walking up. And Otis goes, yeah, man, thanks for all the help, man. You know, and he's like, oh, no problem. And he's, and Otis goes, what was your name, man? <laughs> and you could tell Frampton got the biggest <laughs> kick out of it because he went, Peter Frampton, and then he turned around and walked out. Yeah, and Otis is just kind of standing there, and Otis went, "Nah." <laughs> so you know, but it was funny, man. But you know, I mean, it's the kind of thing where if we'd have had more time on that first album, and if mm-hmm. we would have known a little bit more about what we were doing as far as yeah, because all we'd ever done to that point was demo tapes and mm-hmm. stuff, we didn't know it. A whole lot about the studio and especially at that level yeah and we were trying to do this thing you know on a budget get it out because the quicker we could get it done get the artwork done and get it out the quicker we could get on the road yeah. and start trying to do something with this you know i listened back to that first album and i don't dislike it and i i like it more now than i did at the time mm. because you know you, the longer you get away from something oh, yeah, you yeah. know kind of start you know forgetting about the little things that you hated about it or whatever <laughs> But, you know, I just thought that the final mix ended up being a little bit too polished. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we needed a little bit more edge to it, you know, and it was just a little bit too polished. But, you know, that was kind of Guy's taste. You know, Guy was one of those guys that, you know, he thought that Van Halen got, you know, so much better when Sammy Hager joined, you know, Mm -hmm. because he didn't like David Lee Roth there, which, you know, I kind of like David Lee Roth there, you know, just because I liked, you know, the the more reckless abandon of Mm -hmm. it, you know. And then, you know, he was big fans of, you know, Journey production Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So that was just kind of the sound that he gravitated to. And so I think, you know, with us not knowing what to do as far as assisting, you know, as far as our opinion on the mix and everything. And and then at that time, being afraid of, you know, doing anything that might alienate anybody or piss them yeah, off or yeah. anything. You just kind of wanted to keep, you know, the the good vibes going and yeah. stuff like Somebody that. Somebody else is paying for this. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, right, that's good exactly. You know, you say, yeah, you, exactly. And so, you know, we, we just, you know, it was all new to us, so we didn't want to rock the boat too much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, you know, like the first album, like I said, I think that if there were the opportunity to go back and read, 
remix it, you know, I think it could be something a lot different than what it ended up being. Yeah. But it was good enough to go ahead and get out and start touring, yeah. you know. And I mean, they stuck us out on the road before the album ever came out. We were touring before anybody even knew who we were. Oh, yeah. And I mean, they just had us, you know, going into places and playing. We were honestly playing for $100 a night were on you, the road. Were you like headlining shows or were we just opening Depended. up? Depended. Yeah. Depending on where it was, man. You know, I mean, some places uh, we would open for somebody mm-hmm. and in some places they would have like a local opener like I can remember there's down in Florida and some band called Giant Harry Nevis okay. opened for us you know <laughs> and stuff like that yeah. I still remember their name but um, I'd, that'd be a hard one to forget yeah exactly <laughs> but you know we um, we got out and, and you know just kind of started the figuring out what touring was you know because mm-hmm. we were in a little you know, class CRV, one of those with the, you know, little mom's attic type thing hanging yeah. over the front, <laughs> yeah. you know. And uh, that and a little Ford van with the crew and all the equipment. And that's what we're riding around everywhere, you know. And, you know, I mean, we were still in that kind of stuff. Even when we, you know, later on went out on tour opening for Ugly Kid Joe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's three bands on the bill on that one. And they all, everybody else had a tour bus but us. And we're still in a van and that little RV, you know, and stuff. But, you know, we... We were very frugal, man. We didn't want to spend the money yeah. on renting a, you know, tour bus and all that stuff when we could do fine in this oh, RV yeah, that yeah. we owned. You know, we'd bought it, you know, after we got signed and everything. So, you know, we were we were we were still uh, DIY. We were doing it, mm-hmm. you know, trying to do it all ourselves and trying to save money and all that kind of stuff. You know, like I said, we were still trying to think about you know, a 20 year career. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's actually, this is a very smart way to do you it. Know, yeah. And not realizing that, you know, if the Beatles would have come out at that time, they'd have probably never even got a chance, yeah, you yeah. know, and everything. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, hindsight's 2020. Mm-hmm. And if we would have known what we know now, you could have, we probably would have done a lot more, of stuff yeah, different, yeah, you yeah, know, exactly, and everything. But, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, somebody could write a 20 volume desk reference set of, what to do and you know in the record business Mm -hmm. and it would be obsolete you know within a year because everything changes so quick Mm -hmm. you know it could tell you a lot quicker what not to do in the record business (laughs) you know but you unfortunately you kind of learn that by trial and error but you know it was great because you know we got to get out and start touring and uh you know got to start playing you know outside of our you know, comfort zone mm-hmm. and going to other towns where nobody knew who we were and stuff like that. And you try to, you know, try to do what we could to win the audiences over. And some mm-hmm. places it worked better than others. You know, some places you would end up kind of getting established. And the next time you went back through there, there would be more people yeah. there, more. And in some places it just never happened. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, you're always playing to three people, you know, or something <laughs> like that, you know. But while we were doing this, that second album that Animal Bag did, offering the acoustic mm-hmm. one, the way that came about was it wasn't even supposed to be our second release yeah. at all. We uh, Bob Scoro, the guy that was the head of Mercury that I was talking about, um, Bob ended up getting really into us. He loved us, mm-hmm. you know. And we played a pool party for a bunch of Mercury executives somewhere, you know, and played poolside for all of them and did mm-hmm. an acoustic set. Well, when Bob saw the acoustic set, you know, we were doing some original stuff. They were doing like Jethro Tull stuff and Crosby, Stills, Dash, mm-hmm. and Young and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And when he saw that whole side of the band, he was like, oh, God, we got to do something with this. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is great. He's like, we got to do something with this. He's like, okay. He said, what I want you to do, he said, give you guys like a budget of $5,000. I want you to go in and do a 
acoustic based EP mm-hmm. that we can give away with your first album as like an incentive to get people to buy the first album. You yeah. know, it's like, you know, package them together. Yeah, I remember and, like back then a lot of times you'd go, uh, like, like, they have like t-shirt and cassette Right, exactly. Like you have the yeah. little package deals to get people into some of these bands that they'd never heard of. And so he's like, you know, we've got to do something with this acoustic end. This really sets you guys apart from all these other heavy bands, mm-hmm. you know. And so he gives us this budget and, and he says, but I want you guys to go just do it. However, you, he said, I, like if you guys were doing a demo tape or something, you know, he said, I want you to find your own guy to do it with. I want you you know, do this however you guys would do it. He mm-hmm. said, I just want it to be acoustic based. So we said, cool. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So we went and found this guy. I can't even remember how we found him. And honestly, I don't even remember what his name was. You know, the guy that tracked all freak. I'd have to look back at the credits. But, um, you know, he was a no-name guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a little reel-to-reel eight-track recorder and, uh, you know, some some music stuff set up at his apartment in mm-hmm. Hollywood, you know. And But everybody's like, oh, this guy's good, really good, though, man. He can get really good sounds with this little bit of equipment he's got. Mm-hmm. And, and plus, it was cheap, you know, somebody that we could get. Because, I mean, that $5,000 they gave us, that was for tracking, artwork, everything, you know, mm-hmm. which, you know, $5,000 to a band like we were in at the time in Charlotte would have been a ton of money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but when you're talking about in L.A. on that level yeah. and somebody knows you've got a record deal, mm-hmm. $5,000 was nothing, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, that was nothing. And so we got up with this guy, and he's like, yeah, I'll record it. He's like, but we got to record during the day when all my neighbors are gone because I live in an apartment in Hollywood, <laughs> you know. So we'd have to come in there during the day and record during the day while his neighbors were gone so we couldn't hear noise mm-hmm. through the walls and stuff, you know. So we just recorded this thing in this guy's apartment, you know, like when I needed to do vocals, they'd run a microphone cord under the door to the bedroom and shut the door to the bedroom and I'd do vocals in the bedroom yeah. and stuff <laughs> like that, you know. And so we did this, you know, like five song EP Mm-hmm. And when we delivered it to them, they listened to it and went, how'd you guys do this for $5,000? They said, this is great. And Bob Scorio said, there's no way I'm giving this thing away. This is your second release. Yeah. And so that <laughs> became our second release and released offering, you know. Does anybody here see my good friend Tom? He's by my house just yesterday. He said, I know you're my friend. So now back to the first release. Was yeah. the, did that gain any kind of traction? Is that the one that had every, every that everybody? That one had everybody. On everybody that one, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it did a little bit. Mm-hmm. The problem we had with that one was that at the time, Polygram, you know, their whole umbrella, all mm-hmm. the labels that they all owned, Mercury and all that kind of stuff, Polygram kind of had notoriously bad distribution. Mm-hmm. You know, that was one of their weak links. You know, there were jokes about it in the record industry, you know, about how do you stop the spread of insert disease name here? Let Polygram distribute yeah. it, you know, and stuff like that. You know, it was like their distribution was so bad. That and they, they got were, some big bands too. Yeah, yeah, they did. But if you look back on it, those early 90s kind of became the dark ages mm-hmm. for a lot of Mercury bands because you oh, stopped yeah. hearing yeah. from, you know, Scorpions and Bon Jovi yep. and Kiss and all those kind of bands just kind of went away in the early 90s, mm. you know, all the, you know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, the problem we had with the first album was we would be on tour and we'd go to these towns 
and we'd play a show and get great response. People would go to the record store the next day to buy the album. It wasn't there. Yeah. If it's not there, you know, they forget about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, we got really frustrated with the distribution thing to the point that we would like, when we got to town, if we got there early enough, we would go buy a couple of record stores just to see. Mm-hmm. Because we're like, they know where we're playing. They've got our tour schedule. You know, distribution people should make sure these record stores have the album before yeah. we go to that town and stuff, you know. But somebody was just dropping the ball on that. and mm-hmm. The distribution sucked. And so I think that was a big part of our problem with the first album. Because uh, they actually, the video for everybody, Troy Smith did that video. He mm-hmm. was the guy that did Hunger Strike for Temple of the Dog yeah. and stuff like that. And that video actually got nominated for a Billboard Award for, you know, best video from a new band or something yeah. like that. Didn't win it, of course, but, you know, just to get nominated. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so there were some good things that happened with that first album. But it just never really gave us that foothold that we needed to be able to feel like you had something to springboard to go to your next one you know i always felt like sort of like the time that that came out too it was like i always say say maybe it was a little bit too early like if it had came out a couple of years later like if it if it had been a post grunge era when that came right. out if i think it would have post grunge done yeah. a lot better right when everybody started shifting more towards that strip down less is more mm-hmm. thing you know like the seattle grunge thing where it, it all of a sudden became more about rougher sounding mixes you know there weren't these harmonies there weren't yeah. all these guitar solos there wasn't all this other stuff you know but and a lot of the stuff that came out of that really though exactly went back to doing stuff like exactly. what you guys were already doing it you know that. so i agree on that you know i think that um it was just kind of the wrong time for that album mm-hmm. and unfortunately when grunge came along and everybody jumped on that bandwagon, and all of a sudden, that was all anybody was wanting to sign. Oh, you know, yeah. All those bands were getting snapped up like crazy, and all the bands that were doing, because you know, at the time, we had already gone and recorded Image Damage that never got released, mm-hmm. you know? At the time, they stuck us, you know, we lived in Seattle for almost four months recording that. They got us an apartment over in Kirkland, and we mm-hmm. lived there, you know. We um, were just basically living in Seattle, and every day we would go to the studio and record, you mm-hmm. know. It was like our job. And I uh, had Terry Date produced it, you know, the guy that did, you know, all the Pantera stuff, mm-hmm. did Bad Motorfinger for Soundgarden, did yeah. that first Deftones, you know, I, you know, yeah. a lot of, you know, really, Ben Terry was a great guy, great producer and everything. And so they had Terry produced it. Well, the only place, uh, Terry's from Seattle, and the only place that if you get him to produce you, you go Terry. Yeah. Terry doesn't come to you. Mm-hmm. And so we went to Seattle, and that's why we ended up up there recording. We did all the basic tracks over at Bad Animals Studios. That was the studio that Hard owns up there, mm-hmm. you know. And then finished it out out in Woodenville at a studio called Bear Creek. And there's actually a documentary on Bear Creek that's out there on that studio and everything. Okay. Really cool studio. I'll have to watch that. Kind of out in the middle of nowhere, man. Mm-hmm. But that was where Terry did all of his overdubs and stuff. That's where he did all the stuff with Soundgarden and everything mm-hmm. else. He always went out to Bear Creek and did it. And so, you know, we did this phenomenal album. I, you know, Image Damage. I can still listen to it and go, man, that's a great album, mm-hmm. you know. And um, it the sound is so good and everything. And, you know, I listen to it now. And that album was supposed to come out in 94. Mm-hmm. I, it still stands against anything that's coming out now. Yeah. You know, it, it's a great album. And I think that, like you said, the musical taste after grunge kind of went back in. And you started getting these bands like Tool and everything mm-hmm. else that were kind of, you know, that were great musicians and that 
were doing some different stuff and didn't shy away from longer songs and stuff like that. And it was a, you know, we came back into a scene that would have been more accommodating for what we were doing. But by that time, they had kind of just given up on it. By that time, yeah, man. I, honestly, what happened with that album? We recorded it, we delivered it to them. We thought, man, it's the best thing we've ever done. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is great. <sighs> delivered it to them. And they listened to it. And then they came back and said, okay, here's what we want you guys to do. <laughs> we want to put you back in the studio. We were living back in Charlotte this time. We had left Los Angeles after we got done that okay, first tour yeah. because, you know, we're on the, we were on the road. I mean, we were on that Ugly Kid Joe tour. And so we were on the road for like 11 months without mm. a break. You know, we might have got a, you know, a couple of days off here and there. But other than that, we were playing, you know, six nights a week you know might get one night a week off you know and so we were just playing all the time during that first album so we had moved back to charlotte so they came to us after we delivered image damage to them and they said okay here's what we want you guys to do we want to put you back in the studio Mm -hmm. there in charlotte we want you guys to pick a song that's been a hit and redo it Mm. and we're like oh great we're like we could tell at that point they had no idea what they were going to do with that album. Yeah, you know, they didn't. They, wanted, know. they just want a cover song on it, right? They yeah. wanted something they could throw out the radio mm-hmm. and try to, you know. And so we're like, okay. And so they stuck us back. We went into Reflections, mm-hmm. and we did it's a good studio to go to. Oh, great, <laughs> studio. great studio! And uh, <laughs> the recordings came out great. We recorded a couple of more originals just because we were there and we could do everything so quick. Mm-hmm. You know, we were really fast at tracking stuff. And we did Waiting for the Sun by the Doors. Mm. You know, we kind of did a version of that, which I don't think was as big a hit as they wanted us to do. They wanted us to pick, you know, something that everybody knew. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> okay, what about that song Nirvana put out? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why don't you do that one? <laughs> How would you guys do Smells Like Teen Spirit? Yeah, so, so which is really what they were wanting. But, we, you know, we, we hit them with Waiting for the Sun, you know. And um, anyway. Yeah, we gave that to them, and they took it. And they, you know, for a while, we didn't hear anything from them. And then, you know, they would keep. When you record an album, you know, with one of those big labels, and you know, with a major label deal and everything, basically, it's built into the um, deal. After you deliver that album to the record label, mm-hmm. they have a certain amount of time specified in that deal to put the album out mm-hmm. they can't just sit on it for four years and yeah, go, yeah, yeah. we're gonna eventually release it you know they have a certain amount of time mm-hmm. that they have to get that album out well they let their time window expire you know mercury did mm-hmm. so they came back to us through our attorney and said hey we'd like an extension you know while we're figuring out you know a game plan on release on this and everything and everything. So we said, okay, cool. You know, we'll grant you an extension. So we granted them an extension. And so time came and went and the extension expired and they still hadn't done anything as far as, you know, getting this thing out, you know, Mm -hmm. during this time where you, like playing shows and stuff around uh, Charlotte. A few, or, yeah. you know, a few shows, so the band a few one offs and yeah. stuff like that, you know, but not any kind of anything serious as far as touring. And that, you know, at this point, we're starting to kind of freak out because, you know, we've got road crew guys that we wanted, you know, that were 
friends of ours, you know, mm. and everything that we wanted to be available when we went back out that are going, you know, hey, guys, can't sit around any longer. Exactly, i got to take yeah. this tour, you know, with so-and-so and stuff like that. And so we're watching everything happen for, you know, people around us. And we're sitting here going, all right. Something's going to happen to me soon. We're going to have to go get a job, you yeah, know, and everything. Because, yeah. you know, we're out of money. We don't have anywhere to live, you know. I'm living in my parents' basement because we didn't want to get apartments and stuff if we were getting ready to go back out on the mm-hmm. road for months, you know, and everything. So we're just kind of trying to figure out how to exist while all yeah, this is going yeah. on, you know. They ended up, they come back to us asking for another extension and all this stuff. And at this point, our attorney, Henry, came to us. He said, look, guys. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I can tell you right now this ain't going to happen. He said, you know, they don't have a game plan. They're sitting around waiting to try to figure out what they're going to do with this. Mm -hmm. You know, they've blown through one extension. Now they're wanting another one. He's like, "Um, I think we would be better off to see if we could find another label since we've got the album done Mm -hmm. that would be interested in releasing this album. You know, he's like, "Um, it's going to be, you know, be a whole lot easier since we're going in with a finished product that somebody can hear to try to get another label interested in this that might actually do something for you. So we agreed. And so we, you know, he went back and told Mercury that we couldn't do another extension, you know, that, you know, we just needed to um, move on and figure out what we could do with this. So Mm -hmm. anyway, we ended up getting released from our record deal Mm -hmm. with Mercury. Well, as soon as we got released, we had labels interested in picking up the album. But it was it was labels like, you know, Metal Blade. Roadrunner, mm-hmm. you know, smaller, heavier labels like that because Image Damage was a lot heavier album. Yeah, yeah. So we, but we have a lot of interest. Problem was, Mercury or Polygram mm-hmm. owned the masters to those recordings, and you know Terry Date was supposed to get points off that recording mm-hmm. when it was released and all this stuff. There was a whole bunch of other stuff, and so Polygram just wanted an astronomical amount for the masters. Oh wow, yeah. And so all these labels are going, man, we love this album, we love you guys, but we can't afford this. Mm-hmm. You know, we just can't afford it, you know? Yeah. And so ended up going through all these labels that, you know, and it was the same thing from everybody. We just can't afford it. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't afford it. It's just priced out of our range. And so the album just kind of got shelved. Yeah. And there it sat, you know, finished and everything ready to go. Even the artwork was done, never got released. Yeah. You know? And so, 
you know, that was a big blow to us because we felt like we had just delivered the best thing we'd ever recorded. Mm -hmm. And then it gets shelved and all of a sudden we're sitting around with a finished album we can't do anything with and no record deal. And so we're back in Charlotte at this point. And so everybody's just kind of, you know, once again, wind's knocked out of our sails and everybody's just kind of bummed out Mm -hmm. and depressed. And, you know, it's like, what are we going to do? And so... You know, at this point, everybody's kind of having to, you know, go get a job and everything else because, you know, obviously, you know, Polygram's not going to be giving us any yeah. more money. So, you know, we got to figure out something to pay the bills. And so it instantly shifted back into, you know, we're living in Char- or in and about Charlotte, back to working day jobs mm-hmm. and all this stuff, you know. And then it, it kind of ends up with, you know, Rich started gradually getting more into like electronic music mm-hmm. and stuff like that and started doing all these, you know, kind of electronic recordings and stuff like that and going off that way. And, you know, the, and the whole band just kind of started falling apart, yeah. you know, just yeah. because everybody was just kind of, you know, just so bummed out about the way everything had gone. Yeah. And so, you know, Rich left and went and started pursuing, you know, electronic music and stuff like that. We tried a couple of practices with another guitarist. Mm-hmm. It was not the same. Yeah. You know, Rich was that high harmony. Rich was the one that knew how to take up all that space with mm-hmm. one guitar. Yeah. You know, he, he was, you know, big Alex Lifeson head. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was the the chords he used, the sounds he used. It took up so much space. That's why it was a three-piece that sounded huge. Yeah. was the way Rich played, you know. And so without Rich, it just wasn't the same band. Mm-hmm. And so... We never even officially said we're breaking up or anything. Everybody just kind of drifted off into their own thing. And Boo ended up playing with Gideon, you know, with mm-hmm. Dixie Dam yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. And, you know, Otis ended up doing some stuff with other people. And, you know, I kind of drifted off. And I, I was just kind of, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do, you know. Yeah. And so I was like, you know. You know, I'm going to try something completely different. Mm-hmm. And so I had been hanging out with some guys around here that were kind of into this new grass and bluegrass mm-hmm. scene and stuff. And so I'd been trying to figure that out, you know, on guitar because it was a challenge, you yeah. know, because it was completely different than blues-based rock and roll. So I'd been learning bluegrass and stuff. So I ended up playing some bluegrass and stuff. And then it started that started a band called Tater. Yeah, yeah, you did that for quite a while. Yeah, Tater was, you know, went on for like 10 or 12 mm-hmm. years, man. And Tater did well. Well, Satan got a website and he went online surfing for some souls. Satan got a website and he went online surfing for some souls. Went online surfing for some souls. always a fun show anytime I come see you yeah we were kind of you know and it was you know before a lot of people were doing that kind of merging outlaw country with some bluegrass and stuff mm-hmm. like that we were kind of ahead, ahead of the curve on a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. and so we built up a really good following it was it was a lot of fun and you know eventually you know things kind of run their lifespan mm-hmm. you know and after that many years you know it's just like due to, you know, changes in interest and changes in, you know, attitudes and, you know, just, you know, yeah. everything else. It just kind of ended up, you know, just dissolving the tater thing did. Yeah. And you, did you mostly do that around here? Or did you take that, like, on the road? At, oh, at we all? did a lot of, you know, I mean, we we were 
you know, we had our areas where we were big. We did a lot of stuff in like West Virginia and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. And we were, you know, there were areas that we were a lot of stuff down at the beach and everything mm-hmm. around Myrtle's Inlet, Polly's Island, Myrtle Beach, North Myrtle, all mm-hmm. that stuff. I had a great booking agent down there that, you know, that I actually still occasionally do some work with, you know, when, but he was more into the bluegrass type stuff, mm-hmm. you know, than he was, you know, that, you know, heavy rock and roll. He just didn't really have an outlet for that down yeah, there at the yeah. beach and everything to play into tourists, you know, so. The tater thing went on for a while, you know, and that was, you know, working a day job just like regular and then week, you know, it was a weekend Mm -hmm. warrior thing, you know, just getting out playing weekends and stuff like that. And so we did the tater thing for a while when that kind of dissolved, you know, I tried, you know, going on and doing some stuff with, you know, had the tater family traveling circus, which was basically taking the tater stuff and trying to bring more electric stuff in it and make it a little more rock and roll, Mm -hmm. not quite so bluegrassy and stuff, you know, and. Uh, you know, did that for a little while. It kind of ended up, you know, never really doing as much as Tater did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, well, I don't know much about a night of me, but I can tell you the way that it's going to be about the time somebody starts messing with me. I can tell you how we're all hooked up. That's right, because this ball connected to the cheap ball. Flopping around on the ground You know, with that, it was kind of the thing where with the guys that were playing in the band, we were all at that age where, you know, they had kids and stuff that were getting to that age that yep. it was like, you know, dance recitals and soccer yeah. games and stuff like that. You know, I'm not telling you anything you yeah, don't know. I've, I've been through all that. You That's know, why I took my break from music. It was, right. I, I was I, doing and all I think that stuff. That it's like that for a lot of people yep. that they go, hey, I got to be a part of my kids' lives and mm-hmm. stuff. You know, these are, you know, important times for them. And so it just kind of, you know, became the kind of thing where people couldn't gig as much and this and that and the other. And so and once again, the band never officially broke up. It just kind of drifted apart. And, you know, mm-hmm. guys had stuff they had to kind of take care of with their family life and everything else. And so and then for a long time, I just did solo shows. I just yeah. you know, I didn't really feel like getting another band together or anything, you know. And so I just did the solo stuff until, you know, um, hooked up with those guys and did the grass abilities, you know, later yeah. on for a little while. And that, that, did that start off as mostly like cover songs? Like you, cause you, I, I remember seeing you guys play and you did like a bunch of like you know, scorpions and, you know, just we like did all, all kinds all, of weird stuff, bluegrass style. You yeah. Know. Robbie, the guy that played bass with, um, uh, the grass abilities, he had actually had the grass abilities was kind of his thing. You know, mm-hmm. he had had it years ago and done some stuff like that. They were doing everything from, you know, Guns and Roses songs, bluegrassy style. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was married to a girl and she was singing at the time, had a female singer and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he was um, living uh, you know, around um, the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area okay. at the time. Yeah. And so he was working, uh, you know, this is when the first Grass Abilities, his first incarnation of the Grass Abilities came about. You know, he was part of, um, he had worked at Dixie Stampede for a little while doing dinner shows and stuff. And then he was working at um, the Hatfields McCoy's dinner show, did a bunch of those little dinner show yeah. things, you know, around Gatlin, you know, tourist stuff, you know, where he would, you know, be like the MC for the pre-show and then he would be the bass player and one of the characters for the show mm-hmm. during the dinner show and stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know. And he was all into that kind of stuff. He was, you know, that was kind of his thing. He was, you know, one of those guys that loved to, you know, talk to the audience and had all his little 
little funny yeah. stories and all that. You know, he was a, he was more of a entertainer. Yeah, yeah. You know, he liked the entertainment mm. end of it. Uh, yeah, I won't say more, but he liked that end of it as much as he did the being a musician yeah, end. Yeah. His interest wasn't so much in writing songs and stuff as getting out and performing, mm-hmm. you know. And that's why we ended up doing so many covers and stuff, you know, because, um, you know, he would, you know, oh, we should do this. This always went over really good when we did. You know, oh, we should do this. It didn't went over really good, you know. And he had played, you know, done a little tour um, playing guitar with this girl, Emmy Sunshine, mm-hmm. that was kind of, you know, a child prodigy, bluegrassy ukulele mm-hmm. player girl, you know, and stuff like that. She's still doing stuff, and she's evolved into a more, you know, uh, diverse musician now yeah, and everything. Yeah. But, you know, he played with her during the early days and stuff. And, you know, Robbie was just... um you know, when we went out and did shows, it was, you know, it was a different approach to stuff than what I had done mm-hmm. because he was more about, it was more about the show mm-hmm. and, and putting together this show and getting your show together. And then once you had your show, it was pretty much the same all the time, yeah. you know. I mean, it was, the, we played almost, you know, we might rearrange some of the songs, but we were playing the same stuff all the time. Yeah. And it did. It went great. It went over great to tourists and stuff like that, you know, that kind of little market that, you mm-hmm. know, he was used to dealing with. But it was something kind of different for me, you know, because mm-hmm. I felt like, I don't know. It just felt like I was, I felt like my integrity had been compromised a little bit, if that makes any sense, because we were, you know, delivering such kind of a pre-planned, homogenized, pre-packaged show to these people. I understand that, because I feel like now when we play, like, there's some bands we play with that they kind of prepare their entire show. Right, you know. Between song, banter, and all that stuff. Banter's the same. And that's fine, but it's just not the kind of stuff I want to do. It's not the kind of stuff I'm into either, man, you know. And, uh, you know, Robbie did, you know, most of the talking because he was used to all that kind of stuff, that whole, he had the gift of gab, you know. Mm -hmm. He would do all that stuff, and he was used to talking to those kind of crowds and working that kind of show and everything from all those years with all those dinner shows and all that stuff, you know. I mean, that went on for a while, you know, and we did good and, you know, played a lot down there at the beach and stuff and played mm-hmm. a lot. Gatlinburg, Pins and Forge, Nashville, stuff like that, you know, played some stuff around those areas and, you know, did well, but it wasn't the kind of thing that, you know, you're going to go sell a bunch of records and stuff like that. Or, yeah. you know, people weren't coming to see us for our tunes. They were coming to see us for a show with a lot of songs they already knew, yeah, yeah. you know, and stuff <laughs> like that. And so that was fine, you know. And But I started feeling kind of like I did with the trust mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah, we're doing good. We're playing a lot. People dig it. But, you know, I just wish I could get into something that was, you know, a little bit more artistically fulfilling mm-hmm. and stuff like that, you know, where, you know, doing some original music, doing some more, you know, challenging kind of stuff, you know, not doing – Folsom Prison Blues every night, you yeah, know, and Tennessee yeah. whiskey and stuff like that, you know. So um, I don't know. It just kind of, you know, and I, I had fun with it. I won't say that the Grass Abilities wasn't fun, you know, and I did have a lot of fun with it, even though it wasn't kind of what I was used to doing. Mm-hmm. But then the Grass Abilities thing just kind of, without any warning or any kind of notice, just kind of fell apart yeah. because, you know, all of a sudden, Robbie just kind of, he was living up here in, um, Right outside of, you know, Rutherton, you know, Forest City area, you know, up there and uh, living in a 
house that used to be his family house, his parents' house, you know. He was kind of doing a dual residency thing. He was there, but his son was living around Gatlinburg. Mm-hmm. So he would go up, he would stay for a while in an apartment around Gatlinburg and see his son and play a few shows up there, and then he would come back here and stuff. He was back and forth. And so, like, when he was in Gatlinburg, he'd book us some shows, and I'd drive to Gatlinburg yeah. and we'd play some yeah. shows, you know, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, pretty much the grass billies was me and him. And we would, you know, the third person would just, you know, we would hire gun stuff. Sometimes it'd be a mandolin player, sometimes banjo player, just, you know, hire people for the shows and stuff. And, um, but like I said, all of a sudden, Robbie just took off and moved to, you know, around Sevierville up there and Mm -hmm. bought a house up there. And, Never said I'm moving. Never said grass abilities are over. Never. I'm just all of a sudden he was gone, yeah. man. And like I've still got equipment in the band van somewhere up in Sevierville. I've got like all my mic stands, some of my lights, microphones, all kinds of stuff in that van because I never knew it was leaving. Yeah, yeah. He just took off, you know. And like we, I think we've talked once since then, you know. But um, it was that kind of thing that. I hate to say it, but, you know, and it never was an issue while the band was going on. Mm-hmm. But we just had, you know, different views on, like, you know, political stuff and yeah, things yeah. like that, you know. And it, like I said, it was never an issue. We never talked about it or anything. And then, but it's just like, you know, once the election went down and, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, the changing of the guard and everything, he just took off. And, yeah. like, it was just like he stopped talking to me and everything else. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, uh, so, it, you know, which, you know, oh, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's what it is, yeah. you know. And, uh, you know, I think I think for me that whole Grass Billies thing was kind of, its days were kind of numbered anyway because mm-hmm. I was just getting so burned out on playing the same stuff all the time, yeah. you know. She's my sweet Carolina, I don't think that I could find Another girl who hung the moon and stars up in the southern sky With her gym and eye condition, she put on an exhibition Heart and soul as wild as a honeysuckle vine But those times we have alone, all in quiet nights at home Brother, they don't make them any finer When I'm out there on the road, feeling heavy with my load so while while you're playing with uh, Grass Billies, did you start playing with Still Heroes? That's yeah, I was doing the Still Heroes thing. It was just kind of a um, Al, the drummer for Still Heroes. Mm-hmm. Now we worked together for years. Um, I was head of maintenance at First National Bank here, mm-hmm. you know, for years. And um, ended up hiring Al as part of our maintenance crew. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we worked together doing maintenance, you know, up there. And then we got bought out by Bank of the Ozarks, had to go through a buyout. Mm-hmm. And then once Bank of the Ozarks bought us, well, they didn't do their maintenance in-house. They contracted it all out. Mm-hmm. So they kept me on you know, as a facilities administrator and I had to let all my guys go and all that kind of stuff. But we had worked together for years at the bank and everything. I'd known Al forever since back. He was, you know, a little bit older than me. And when I first started playing music, I can remember like in seventh grade going to see a band that Al was in. He was in a band called Minotaur. And they did all like Iron Maiden and Sabbath and stuff like that. You know, new wave of British heavy metal stuff, you know, mostly. And I can remember the first time I went to saw them, you know, I, I didn't know Al at all. And, you know, he got up there 
And in between songs, he's talking. I was like, man, that guy's British or something. And then I figured out it was like a Kayser accent. It wasn't British, you know. It was like, you know. So, <laughs> but um, anyway, but, you know, we, we just had a, uh, you know, we'd known each other forever and common interest in metal and stuff. Mm-hmm. Steel Heroes was kind of something that he had thrown together uh, with some other guys he knew, just kind of as a for fun thing, mm-hmm. you know, never yeah. wanting to do more than a few gigs a year, you know, or anything. And it was kind of interesting to me because I hadn't played bass in years and I got to go back and, you know, play bass with Steel mm-hmm. Heroes and stuff. And so that, that was fun, man. You know, I got to do that. And then the Steel Heroes thing, it went on for a while. And then um, I ended up having to bow out of Steel Heroes because the Grass Billies thing was just, you know, we were doing a lot of stuff like, uh, you know, we did a couple of little Canadian tours and went up to Nova Scotia mm-hmm. for a few weeks and okay. stuff and did stuff like that. During the summer, we'd go down to the beach for about a week out of yeah, every yeah. month and play down there. And I just got, I just didn't really have time to mm-hmm. do the um, Steel Heroes thing anymore. So they had a new bass player for a little while. Then that whole thing kind of evolved and, uh, you know, the guys, a couple of the guys left and uh, started hammer down, hammer down yeah, you know, yeah. and so that was kind of a spin off of that. And actually, Al's still jamming with some guys, and um, I think they're going to start playing out soon as some other band. I don't know what they'll be called, but you know, um, but the the Steel Heroes thing kind of got me back into playing metal and stuff yeah, again. Yeah. You know, kind of got me back to wanting to play rock and roll again. Mm-hmm. And um, then after the Grassabillies fell apart, and I had free time, and that's when you know art. Uh, Mooney that plays bass for Dangerous Ways he mm-hmm. called me up was like hey man we kind of need a another guitarist you know like a second guitarist and maybe somebody to share some of the vocal duties in Dangerous Ways you know would you be interested by this time I had been kind of you know not playing that much doing an occasional solo show mm-hmm. all of a sudden I had weekends again you know because I wasn't gigging every weekend yeah, and yeah. you know Amanda and I were getting some stuff done around the house and getting ready you know to do stuff and I said well you know I mean, I'm interested in joining a band I said as long as it's not the kind of thing where I'm on the road all the time I said I just really don't want to be on the road all the time right mm-hmm. now I'm kind of enjoying having a little time at home and they're like oh no this won't be like that at all you know and so, you know, I joined Dangerous Ways, and yeah, and that's been fun, man, because, you know, I'm playing, you know, electric guitar, and we're doing a lot of the Kiss and Thin Lizzy, where we get mm-hmm. to do the dual solos oh, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that, and, it, and it's just fun, man. I hadn't got to do that kind of stuff before. Dangerous Ways, you know, we gig, but we don't gig a ridiculous amount, you know. Yeah. Those guys, you know, JT, the guitarist, has got, you know, a couple of other bands he's playing with, you know, he's got like three bands, and mm-hmm. Art's playing with like two or three bands, you know, so... That was what kind of gave me the idea and the opportunity to start the little motorhead oh, yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. you know, which is um, that thing is just now starting to get off the ground. You know, we haven't even practiced yet, but I've got some guys lined up. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's a great idea. Oh, man. Yeah. Because everybody and, loves motorhead. Yeah. And that's what I said, <laughs> you know. I don't know how many gigs there really are for a Motorhead tribute band, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like you're going to be playing town festivals, you know, yeah. going, you're jailbait, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's, you know, Motorhead's got its place. I am and, the one, orgasmatron. Yeah, and all that stuff, you know, I, but I'm not going to be playing live after five up here at Shelby yeah. with a Motorhead <laughs> tribute band, you know, and I know that. But I thought... Man, you know, even if it doesn't go much of anywhere, could there be anything more fun than just getting up there and playing Motorhead all night? Yeah. Especially when I get to do Lemmy's part. You know, I mean, you, you're getting all into it too. Oh, I like, get. I, oh man, <laughs> but see, I, lo- I love that man. I, I love the uh, you know. 
Oh, I've got plans, man. You ain't even seen half the yeah. plans that if the if the Motorhead thing and probably do them even if the Motorhead thing doesn't go anywhere, I just got to do it. You know, I, I, I was like, you know, I could build a bomber light rig out oh, of PVC well, yeah. with, you know, way too much. Go back to you your know? roots, <laughs> yeah, you know, stuff like that. So I've got all these plans for the Motorhead thing, and it's fun, man. I, I always kind of said I would never do a tribute band, but I guess really what you know. I've never wanted to do a tribute band while the band you're doing a tribute to yeah, is still active, yeah, yeah. you know? I, I think that's the kind of thing for me. What's the point in going to see a Kiss tribute band when you can go we see Kiss? We Kiss, you know, and stuff like that, you know? And so I, with the Motorhead thing, you know, Lemmy's gone. The guys have said there'll never be mm-hmm. another Motorhead. So it's like, now's the time to do that, you know? If, but I wanted to do it. I said, if I'm going to do this, I want to try to make it as much like the real Motorhead yeah, show yeah. as I can. There's several bands that kind of do that stuff, you know, like on the Grateful Dead level, there's Dark Star Orchestra mm-hmm. that takes, you know, takes the tribute thing to kind of the next level. Yeah. They'll sit down with, you know, these bootlegs of shows and they'll learn the whole entire show mm-hmm. off that bootleg yeah, yeah. and go, you know, okay, tonight we're doing Hershey Park 1973, yeah. <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. And I always thought, you know, those guys, for we actually knew some people that, uh, one of the roadies from Dark Star Orchestra, and they used to park their crew truck in front of the Yellow House next door. Yeah. Sometimes when they'd be on, you know, in this area, they needed somewhere to park the truck for a couple of days, mm-hmm. and the Dark Star Orchestra truck would be parked over there in front of the house next door and stuff. But um, that's kind of what I want to do with this Motorhead thing is just, you know, try to make it to where it's as much like going to a Motorhead show as you could on a smaller level oh, because yeah. you know I know we're not doing we're not going to do arenas and stuff and that's why you know I kind of had to do some stuff with my murder one and yeah. everything you know <laughs> because you know it looks like Murder One, but it's not Murder One, you yeah. know, because I can't crank a hundred watt Marshall oh, yeah. to the level Lemmy did and think I'm going to play some of these smaller clubs without killing somebody, mm-hmm. you know. So my Murder One's fifty watts, you know, and stuff like that. Um, but the yeah, the whole Motorhead thing has just been so much fun because you, you can, you you know, I, I've been into them forever, mm-hmm. and so to finally kind of get the opportunity to play the role you know pretty much of Lemmy in a band and play Motorhead stuff and play it loud and uh, you know the guy that uh, I really haven't we haven't announced who the members are of you know it's it's going to be called Killed by Death it's the name of the band you know yeah. but um until we do this first practice and make sure that everything goes good and that we all can jam together and stuff like that, we haven't really been saying a whole lot about it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll cut the names out. Like, in, if I use any of that in the beginning, I'll go ahead and cut their names out since you haven't announced it yet. Right, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, but um, the drummer is probably a bigger Motorhead fan than I am. Mm-hmm. And he's just, he knows everything about Motorhead, you know, and he's even got, you know, he's got the big double bass kit and everything, you know. That's what I was worried about. It's like, man, I'm going to find a drummer, but somebody's going to want to be uh, bring in a single bass kit with a double pedal, yeah, yeah. and it just won't be the same, you know, because yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Motorhead's always had double bass and lugged around the whole thing, and this guy's like, dude, I got the whole set. It's, you know, it's about like the one that, uh, you know, 
Phil was using on the early stuff. He's yeah. like, and now he's even talking about what he can get on his drum heads and all that. I mean, he's way into it. Too. Yeah. He's into it on the same level I am, you know. So um, yeah, because this is an audio podcast, people can't see, but you've got the limited facial hair going on. Oh yeah, now. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to rock some fake chops. Yeah, so, like the band know, hasn't so, even started yet, but you're already going with. Oh, the, I look. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, this is going to be. I I'll, listen, man. I you, you don't even know what extent this has gotten to. I've got the uh, square dance convention t-shirt. You yeah. know, the one millennium oh, wow. all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's like you know, this is gonna. There's the hat with mm-hmm. the uh, with yeah. the exact pin on it. And, you know, that that the picture where Libby's pointing at you. Mm-hmm. That's the exact band and pin on the hat and everything. Oh. I, you know, it's <laughs> like I I've gotten to where I'm just a stickler on all this stuff. Is trying to put this thing together. You know, so I, I want it to be when people come see it, they're gonna leave going. Wow, that was killer, yeah. you know. You know, so and and then you know, I know there's there's already some interest, you know. Like I said, I don't know what volume of interest, you know, but I've already had some other tribute bands hit me up and go, dude, we got to get a, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, a double bill together with the Motorhead and you know, my tribute band and stuff, you know, we've got I, it. I think it'll go over really well. I mean, because really, right now, like tribute bands do really, they well. they do really I mean, well. Always, you know, I can't deny that, you know. And that, I thought. For myself, you know, like you said, you, you couldn't really see yourself just playing covers and stuff. Or, right. Or tribute band. And, but, you know, one of these days, I don't see a problem with doing that. I'm, I'm probably going to do the same thing, too. I'm going to, I mean, at least play Look, part-time and if it's a in a band cover that band. You, you know, if it's a band that you're, you know, really, you have that passion for them and you have mm-hmm. that, you know, you, you've been into them for that long. And it's like, I get to get up there on stage and, and kind of become Lemmy for yeah. a little while, you know, and that's going to be so much fun, you know, yeah. and play, you know, all these songs. It's like, you know, I, I emailed the guys, you know, like nine songs to kind of work on before the initial practice mm-hmm. so that we'd have some direction. And it, it was so hard to pick those nine songs, man. And mm-hmm. even now I go, oh, man, why didn't I put so-and-so on the list and all that stuff? But there's just too many songs that I want to play, oh, yeah, yeah. you know. And so, you know, we'll get around to all of them eventually, you know. But um, you know, I just wanted to get enough together that we, you know, could kind of see how this thing worked. And if it just happened to hit great right off and somebody said, hey, can you do an opening slot? Mm-hmm. We'd already have enough stuff to kind of oh, yeah, work yeah. up to where we could jump right in and do it. So it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, I'm still doing the Dangerous Ways thing, you know. But the Motorhead thing is, you know, right now, the goal with it is just to be something to have something else to do when Dangerous Ways isn't playing, you know, do this Motorhead thing and try to do some different kind of gigs, you know, different kinds of clubs, you know, get on some maybe different, you know, little festivals Mm. and (laughs) biker rallies or whatever we can, you know, just to get up there and play Motorhead. I told everybody, I said, you know, and this is going to be the kind of thing. No, I'm not going to turn down for a club. I don't care if the people at the first table can't hear each other talking to each other. (laughs) It's going to be frigging loud. You know, it's going to be, you can't do a quiet motorhead tribute. (laughs) You know, it's got to be, you know, you're going to leave your ears ringing. Mm -hmm. And if a club or whatever can't, accommodate that then yeah it's not the right place for this to play you know we're just going to go into it going this is a loud show and if you can't do it then you know i'm you know i'm sorry you know we've got to be loud we just got to be so you know it's uh but it's going to be a lot of fun man i can't wait we're doing our first practice on the 19th yeah then after that hopefully we can kind of make the announcements and kind of start 
trying to get it together to where we can go ahead and start booking some gigs and stuff like that. So, um, you know, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Man. I can't to wait that. to do be. the Motorhead thing. It's going to be. Yeah. And, and, and then I think it's just the whole idea of coming back to your roots and getting to play, be a bass player again. Mm-hmm. And so, even though I, I feel like more of a guitar player playing the way Lemmy plays, because mm-hmm. oh, yeah. it's not yeah. very bass player, you know, it's more like playing yeah. rhythm yeah. guitar. But and you know I've had to kind of get used to the whole Lemmy style of playing too, you know, because mm-hmm. you know that sound. I mean, it's all the way from where he plays on the neck to yep. how he plays. Yeah, I mean, everything to where he uses so many chords and stuff mm-hmm. instead of just straight up notes and oh, stuff. Yeah, and yeah. so I've been researching. You know, I, it's just been like living Lemmy for like the last <laughs> yeah. several months. I don't know that my wife is thrilled to be married to a second-rate Lemmy. You know, I don't know if that's what she would have picked. You know, I think she would have rather be married to, like, Chris Robinson or something like that than Lemmy Kilmister. So, you know, but hey, you know, I mean, it'll be fun. Hello, Cosmo did mean to go astray. Took life too serious, began to slip away. Almost conformed to expectations of the mass. Need to relax a while and lie down in the grass Good day, sunshine, can't share and no warm glow Put trust in people that I didn't even know Almost convinced me to regret Shots of the mass 
that I can keep doing something that'll be interesting to people because I mean this is the kind of thing I don't you know and that's the great thing about the motorhead thing is I figure you know what I've got till I'm in my 70s and stuff (laughs) and still stay you know I I don't have to keep doing an Elvis tribute as as old Elvis you know or something like that with Lemmy, you know, he wrote it up until he died. Exactly. You know, yeah. so I, I'm hoping to do the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. I I don't ever see myself not doing, yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah. performing and stuff. I, you know, as long as I'm physically able, it's going to be something that I do because I've always done it, mm-hmm. and it just some becomes so much of a part of your routine. It becomes oh, yeah. a part of you. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you know, you can't really. I would feel lost if I didn't have mm-hmm. it. So, uh, you know, so that's what I, I'm just hoping that I can stay interesting to somebody with whatever I'm doing to where I can just, you know, ride this as long as I can ride it. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. So. That's, that's what I hope to do is just, you know, like I said, I'll keep doing Van Huskins for right now, but whenever that falls apart, I'll find something else. But, yeah. you know, down the road, you might find me playing in a tribute band or something. Yeah, just because exactly. it's, I want to keep doing it, and yeah. I, I'm going to find a way to do it. Yeah, and as long as you're doing something that is fulfilling to you mm-hmm. as a musician, you know, I mean, I don't really care what it is. You know, I mean, I, you know, whether you're playing cover songs or tribute band or original stuff, I mean, to me, I kind of got over... I guess at a certain age, we all do. Mm-hmm. You kind of get over doing this for somebody else and you start doing it for yourself. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, you know, at that point, it's almost like a weight's lifted off your mm-hmm. shoulders, you know, <laughs> and you go, you know, all right, I don't have to please anybody anymore. I just do this, you know, I'll do what I enjoy and just have fun doing it mm-hmm. because, you know, because, I mean, my aspirations have never been, I guess, to be a rock star, my aspirations have always been to be a working musician. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a big difference. I don't think a lot of people that are outside of, you know, playing music, you know, professionally, semi-professionally, mm-hmm. whatever, really understand the difference that there, but there is, you know, I mean, there's people that want to be famous for doing this and mm-hmm. everything. And that's more important to them is the accolades and the fame and the recognition and then there's the guys that go, that do this because they enjoy doing it and because it's something that's just a part of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as long as you've got the gigs, you know, you're bring, bringing in enough money to support your habit. You know, I guess being a lifer musician yeah. is not that different than being a drug addict. you got to find a way to support <laughs> yeah, your habit. You know, you, know, you just got to. So that's what I'm doing, man. I'm supporting my habit, whatever it takes. You know, so. <laughs> This has been a Gabba Gabba Hunt Media Production. I'm so glad I grew up during that era where, you know, that was there and we just stayed up and we watched whatever came on. Yeah. These days, kids watch whatever they want to watch and they don't find. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure they find some great stuff. Yeah. But they don't get that stuff bestowed upon them. Like, right, yeah. Here's this that you need to know about. Like, right. we got back you know, when we were kids, it's like, oh, mo- what's this motorhead thing? Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> these you guys know. look... These guys look scary. Yeah. I dig this. Yeah. See, what got me into it, besides the sound, was they were just so the antithesis of... They were ugly guys playing music. They were ugly as could be. But they were cool. You know, it's like, you know, damn, those guys, you know, they might kick your ass, but I'd like to hang out with them, just see what they do. You know, like they play that, and you'd see like Alice Cooper, Rush, and just all these really cool bands that that became super important to me growing up. Me too, And I got exposed to them at a really early age just because I stayed up late and watched MTV. I think it's a common thing for everybody from our era. Yeah.